Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, January 23rd. We are here live. It is time for the Power Hour. We'll take all of your maintenance-related calls. Those phone lines are open right now, so start dialing. 319-527-6791 or hit the Dial Now button on your app. That will get you in here. We can talk about everything and anything maintenance, engines, performance, fuel mileage, modifications, upgrades, troubleshooting, emissions, electronics, you name it, we'll tackle it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and join us. I see Bruce is here, so we'll bring Bruce in and uh, wait for the rest of the team. Bruce, good morning. Good morning, Kevin. As always, it's our pleasure to be here. What uh, What's on your mind today? Well, on January 4th, 1984, a young man came to see me. Keep in mind, this was our sixth, basically sixth year of being in business. And he applied for employment, and I hired him. He was right out of Rosedale Technical School. And uh, I, at the time, did the fuel pumps and the injectors, and he was kind of fascinated by the pump stand, and his name was Pat Sharp. Now, this is Pete Sharp's twin brother. Ah, okay. Pete, our vice president, who does the show with us. This is Pat. They're not identical twins, but they're twins. I don't even know which one's older, but it doesn't matter. So <laughs> since 1984, this is his 40th year with us, 40 years of building big Kim Cummins pumps, injectors, turbochargers, oil coolers, after coolers, MVT, mechanical variable timing units, and uh, water pumps, trying to think of all the other components, virtually uh, oil pumps, Every component, accessory drives, every component on the big cam engine we used to build, and he has built them. Wow. That, that. And, uh, okay, they're in. So they're, uh, Leroy just let me know that they're, they're in on the show. So. Okay. Anyway, we want to say congratulations to Pat for giving us 40 wonderful years. And most people never see him because he's in the in the pump room and he comes in the side door and out the side door and eats his lunch in the pump room and keeps it absolutely spotless. Well, you've been in the pump room and you've seen how he keeps that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Bruce, somebody being at a job for 40 years is so rare these days. But it, it, it always tells me something about a company when, and it's not just one employee that you've had for a long time. Pete's been there a very long time. You, you have a lot of people that have worked there a very long time. I was just down at NASTIC, and it's same thing. And I always notice that because it's really unusual today. People jump jobs all the time now. And to see long careers with one company is pretty rare, but it, it tells you something. And I'm always impressed by companies that have a lot of employees that have been around a long time. Well, Pete started in August of 1987. So he followed his, uh, his twin brother. And Amy, our secretary controller, she is around 35 years now. And Brian Moan, the shop foreman, he's in his high 30 years. And Sean... Mangle, our parts manager, who is Amy's nephew, 
we have we do hire families here. Yeah. One time we had uh, we had uh, um, Adam that does the Hawkeye Report. Yeah, he had two of his sons working here one day, and one company stole the one son away, and the other son ended up getting back into the motorcycle racing. Um, he was a dirt track racer, and then he's had a chance to go with a company that sold products at the races. So. Okay. Anyway, um, so I just wanted to say that about, oh, I want to say uh, some people tell me through Messenger that they like the old stories. So I want to say a story about Pat Sharp, mechanical variable timing units, MVPs. That's what we use to to use to change the timing on the big cams. It came from the factory on the twin turbo 475 in 1985, 86, 87, and very few people knew much about them, but Pat knew a lot. And we had bought every, when Cummins left Los Angeles and went to Juarez, Mexico, they had 54 MVT units, and they shipped them all to us. And so Pat had rebuilt all 54 of those. Plus, he had done several hundred up to that point. But we had a truck in, and I think it came from Minnesota or North Dakota, one of those northern states. And Cummins had built the engine and become the distributor, and there was a problem, a problem with the MVT. So we took it off, and we repaired it, put it back on, had the truck running great. And a couple weeks later, I get a phone call from our Cummins distributor, which was a mile down the street from us in Harmer, from a Bill McKee, who was the general manager there, and he was a personal friend of mine. And he said, Bruce, I got a complaint from the Cummins distributor in Minnesota, North Dakota, whatever. He said that that MBT unit that you guys built, you put the rack and pinion in backwards. So it's a rack and pinion that moves the cam followers in and out to change the timing. So I said, boy, that's amazing because Pat has rebuilt so many of those. So I go into the Pat pump room and I said, Pat, we've got a complaint from Cummins that uh, you put the MVT shaft in upside down. He looks at me and said, it's impossible. <laughs> I said, why is that? He says, because... On a rack and pinion, you know, you have the, the teeth cut into it. And on the one end, there's no teeth for about a quarter inch. Well, you can't have the pinion go where there's no teeth, right? It has to stay on the shaft with the teeth. So he hands me the rack and pinion, hands me the center section of the MBT unit. He said, here, try it. And I wasn't able to do it. So I load that into my pickup truck. I go a mile down the street. I walk in because if you say we did something wrong, I, I want to verify it. Right. So I take it in. I Bill's desk. I said, I want you to put this together backwards, upside down, whatever they, they said we did. And he fiddled with it for about three or four minutes. He said, it's impossible. I said, that's right. Now get on the phone with that guy that filed that complaint to you. And tell him, you have these parts in your desk, and you have Bruce Mallinson right here at your desk. He called the guy, and he explained to him that it's impossible, you can't do it. And so then I said, now I want a letter of apology addressed to Pat. And we got that letter of apology. Good. 
Good. So that was one of my short stories for things that happened in the past. All right. So I, last I've got week something. we talked about Shauna Gray. Oh, go ahead. That? We talked about Shauna Gray out in Brandon, South Dakota, one of our dealers, and she does the MV alignments, the uh, remote tunes, and the catalyst dealers. And she's a dealer for this stuff called bull snot. Not that familiar with it, but she's making me familiar with it because she sent me some of this hand cream to put on where I had the icing on my face where I froze my face, but that's all new skin now. So she sent me some spray-on wax that I'm going to try this afternoon and some window cleaner that she said is great for shower stalls. And Anybody that has a ceramic shire stall with the grot in the middle knows how hard that is to keep that clean. But she sent me two bottles of hot sauce. Now, I'm going to read what's on the label. I would never, ever say anything like this on your radio show. But the fact that we're not on XM, I think I can do it this. But this is right on the labor, label. Okay. Trucker G. G-Spot Hot Sauce. Puts exotic heat to your meat. Mango habanero and garlic habanero. How about that for on a label? There you go. It's a little racy. Pretty interesting. A little, little dicey there. Yeah. Um, also wanted to mention, Pat Sharp's been working our pump stand for, we bought it in 1981 or 82. He's been working it since 1984. He knows the pump machine so well that if it fails, he takes it apart. We usually can either make the part or we have our friend John Anderson make the part and we put it back together because the company's no longer in business. But it was the early 90s. I had my 89 Dodge Cummins pickup. We were looking for a new injector machine. It's made by Hartridge that runs the injectors for the big cams and small cams and the K-Series Cummins. And these things were really expensive, several hundred thousand dollars. So I was looking for a used one. And I got a phone call. And it was late in the afternoon. And the people that had it were in Oklahoma. They were in the eastern part of Oklahoma. And they said, if you want it, you better get here fast because... It won't last. I immediately went home, packed an overnight bag, and I was on my way to Oklahoma, and I was there the next morning. I bought this Hartridge HA290 injector comparator machine. And it was a similar message that I got when I found my Kenworth in Kansas City, my single axle with the 840 CPL big cam with the VIT interior, the one that you borrowed from me. Oh, yeah. And it was the same thing. I called the place in Kansas City. They said, we had five of them. We're down to one. If you wanted, you better give us money right now and get out here to get it. The next day, I was in Kansas City. So there's a saying, snooze, you lose. If you want something and you have the money for it and the opportunity comes, you got to go after it. Hey, Bruce. Because opportunities don't last you know you the other day when i was running around trying to take care of the two properties and the coach and it was snowing and freezing and you said boy it, it seems like you've added an awful lot of work um and we have it, it's been a lot of work 
because we were not in the market for that property, but that was the dream property that at some point we were going to go out and look for. And the 12 years we've been living here in Oregon, we've bought a couple properties. We go look at properties all the time. Um, but we were picking up, you know, just vacant land that we could turn into vacation rentals, put a tiny home or a yurt or something, because it's just a big thing here in the gorge. Uh, and ultimately, we were going to look for some sort of a property like that. But we weren't really in the market yet. But the statement you just said, opportunity. When you find something, you've got the money, you've got to take it. And, you know, there's always that saying, well, there will be another property. There'll be another house, another investment, whatever. And sometimes, most of the time, that's true. Every once in a while, it's not. And I, I had a realtor tell me he's been selling real estate in the gorge for 40 years. He said, this is a one-of-a-kind property. He said, if you didn't get this, he said, you may never have an opportunity to get one like this again. He said, you could probably buy some raw land, but by the time you turned it into what this is, and if it had all the same amenities, and he said, you would pay way more than what you just paid for this property. And it was, it was horrible timing for us. I mean, it, it was, it, it, and it still is in a lot of ways, but it was just one of those things that it, I just had that gut feeling um, that I should not pass this one up. What you were looking for was a little farm, and how many little farms are there? Now, if you're looking for a fixer-up house that's on a half-acre lot. Oh, yeah, quarter, they're everywhere. That's a whole different thing. But when you were looking for something um, like what you were, just like that truck we talked about last week that was found, a new A model Kenworth with, what, 16,000 miles on it? Right. Was it 1676? Right. But it was ultra low mileage. I mean, when you find something like that, there is no time to think about it. Right. You have to react and go. So, you know how we have cliches and sayings that there's one, um, you know, you just talked about, you, you just have to take advantage of it uh, and it just was one of those cases it was kind of a one-of-a-kind thing the odds of finding it again are are almost zero and sometimes you've just got to make that decision now I, I was going to say that the cliches there's uh, there's one that kind of sums up what you just said he who hesitates is lost and that's really what that means, that there are times where you, you just have to be decisive. But then there's another saying that, that is a cliche that says, look before you leap. Which one am I supposed to follow? But the look part, you've already have been looking. Yeah, you're you right. And that, that was the case. Thinking about that farm, right? So yeah. you had been looking. So... It's just don't leap all of a sudden there's something there. If you know what you want, uh, years ago in the sales training I was at, they said if you want something bad enough, take a picture of it and hang it on your bathroom mirror. Yeah. That way you see it every morning. And I did that. I put a house in Colorado up in the Rocky Mountains on my bathroom mirror. And it, it took 27 years later to finally get it, but I got it. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, and so, all right. All right. Was, well, uh, we've, uh, we've got... Uh, uh, years ago, a guy would 
stop by the booth in Louisville Truck Show, which is coming up. And I understand you may have a mini CMC there. Is that correct? I, I am going to make an announcement um, right after we hear from uh, Pete and Leroy. Okay. Okay, good. Well, a guy would said three years ago you talked to me about the manifold and the turbo and the damper and balancer and the mufflers, and he said, I'm ready to make a decision. I said, it only took you three years? <laughs> Do you realize how much, first of all, how much enjoyment you you didn't get out of driving your truck right. when you lost and the fuel mileage that you lost? And it's the same thing now with the max mileage catalyst. There's still people on the edge. They're still thinking, but they're still spending their eight to $9,000 a year maintaining their emission systems when they could spend... 1500 a year, run the truck on the max mileage catalyst, not have a day's downtime, and not have any emission problems, but they're still thinking about it. I know. I know. All right. Let's, uh, let's hear from Pete and Leroy. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Kevin. How are you today? Doing great. What, uh, is Leroy around? Is he snoozing? He is. Yeah, he's awake still. Good. Good morning, Leroy. <laughs> where where does this fall asleep thing come from? That's I don't what I'm know. Curious about. I don't know. We just we got to pick on you for something. That seems like the easy one. Yeah, I'm just I'm just I'm just curious because it's I don't know. It's very strange. Yeah. Uh, Pete sends pictures while I'm sleeping on the show. Not or what? far off though, Kevin. <laughs> I, I see his eyes you once in a while. It's like a toddler needs a little nap. Yeah. There you go. Sometimes naps are good. I, I have to say that there are times that I nap as well. Oh, yeah. I like my naps. Yeah. No, no doubt. So I got a couple isn't, that why there's a bunk, isn't that why there's a bunk on a semi-truck? <laughs> That's right. A nap. If you're going down a highway and it's 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon or 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and you take that second nod, isn't that telling you get in the next rest area, parking lot, and just park it and climb in the bunk for a little bit? Might be 20 minutes, might be two hours, might be six hours. Sometimes those are talking to us. Sometimes those are my best naps ever. They sure are. Yeah. So, Pete, what's on your mind today? So a couple of things. Um, so the shop's fairly open. So if someone needs to make an appointment, we can get them in pretty quickly. Uh, we're also running a diesel force special. It's it's twenty two forty nine for the diesel force. Um, oil and filters, everything in, included. Uh, and, and we haven't run specials on that before, simply because the shop's been so full, we can't get people in. Now that we have some room, uh, we want to run a special on the diesel force, and it's just beneficial to so many people to have their engines cleaned out because they haven't been running the catalyst that maybe idle a lot, get some sort of failure, and the engine needs clean. So we're running a diesel force special um, this month. Uh, so you can check, out, check it out on the website. Um, had an interesting call. We have a customer that his broker won't let him drive his truck because it was deleted. So he uh, wants an estimate for us to put everything back on. So we do that. Um, we don't do it a lot. Uh, for whatever reason, I mean, it's not that we turn down, it's just, it's expensive. Uh, especially when people had someone do it and they didn't know what was done. You know, the, the things are off, things are missing, it can add up, but if you can't run your truck because you don't have the emission system on it, it's still cheaper than a truck. 
than buying a truck. And of course, you can't really sell that one with everything deleted, or you won't get much for it. So, you know, put everything back on it and, and make it legal. What was the estimate? So this one, so he needed an estimate for the bank. He said everything was taken off. And usually, when that happens, a guy will go down that road when they have a turbo problem, EGR problem. There's an issue. So some of the components are probably bad. But assuming, you know, it's the DPF, the EGR valve, the VT turbo, the manifold, because all that was missing, DOC, sensors, harness, we're in, in twenty five to $27,000 mark for that. A lot of so, expensive components. Yeah, it is. Uh, boy, I don't even know where to go with this one. I, I've got some serious thoughts here, and none of them are good. Um, what, what's the story? Did, did he tell you the story on why and how this truck was deleted? Did he buy it not knowing it? Did he delete it? Did he tell you that part? Well, he must have done it because he has some of the parts. And, and so, Eric said, hey, bring whatever you have. We'll reuse what we can. And, of course, so, if we're able to reuse something, then we obviously take the new part off the bill, and that would bring the price down. So the fact that he has the parts tells me he must have done it himself. So... Here's my thought on all this. He spent money to delete this in the beginning, which we have been saying for well over a decade now. Do not delete these vehicles under no circumstances. Just don't delete them. It just doesn't make sense anymore. So that was a bad decision that cost a lot of money. And now he's going to double or triple down on bad decisions, and it's only going to get worse. I I can almost predict, I hate to do this, but I'm pretty accurate at this. I can almost predict with close to 100% certainty he's not going to be in business next year. He's, he's, because I heard you mention the bank. So I'm assuming he can't afford to pay for this. He's got to borrow money now to do this. Right. Now, here's what I would say, and I hate to say this because I, I, I'm, it's not that I care about the EPA all that much or their rules, but, but deleting these things is a mistake. We've been saying it for a long time. It should be made right, but I honestly think that him spending $27,000 to make this right now and he's got to go borrow the money to do it is a huge mistake. First off, I have never heard of a broker who would care about this issue at all. I've never even heard of a broker that would even understand this issue for the most part. And I'm shocked that that the broker's that involved in this guy's business that he knows his truck is deleted. And I would have to look at that broker and say, sorry, I, there's other freight somewhere else that I don't have to spend $27,000 to haul this guy doesn't have that great a freight, I can guarantee it. Everybody's got about the same freight. And I can't understand why, at this point, you would now borrow money, pay $27,000 to fix it, because one broker says, you can't hold my freight. This is a horrible decision. I'm wondering if they run to California, and that's why maybe they're worried about losing their load. If it goes to California, he gets stopped or you know, an issue with the load. I, I don't I, know the details. I would say at this point, where we are in the market, the economy, screw California. There's 47 other states you can pull freight in. I, I, I do not understand somebody who, look, if, if it was a matter of, well, I've got the cash, I'm just going to fix it because I want it to be right. 
I don't know what you were thinking when you decided to delete it, but it's worse than that. He doesn't have the cash. He's got to go borrow it. And in today's economy, with, with the market and everything the way it is, it, this, these are just really giant red flags that this guy's not going to make it. So how about this, how about this, Pete? If a guy buys a truck, 389, it's deleted, why doesn't he, and so he has zero parts, and he wants to put it back on. Why doesn't he go around to these shops that are doing the deletes and picking up these parts? Because they're just scrapping them. They're just throwing them in a dumpster. Accumulate the parts. Get a list of everything that he needs and start to accumulate them so that we can put it back on. Bruce, yeah, you know, that, be a good idea. that is a really good idea, but I'll tell you what the problem is going to be. I have a feeling this broker is putting pressure on him that he's not going to dispatch him. He's not going to give him freight. He's got to get this fixed and accumulating the parts could take a while. But I, I think that's a great idea if he says, look, I know I made a mistake. I want to make this right. Um, to take your time and pick up the parts wherever you can. And again, I, I, I am just shocked by this relationship with, with a broker that, that, like I said, that the broker's this deep into the guy's business that even knows this. And here's the other thing. I have never, in all the reading from the EPA, the industry news, I have never, ever once even seen a hint that they would hold a broker responsible for something like this. You know, there, there have been cases where they've held a broker responsible for an accident that a carrier has. And, and it was a big, big deal. C.H. Robinson actually got sued um, and they were held responsible for an accident because they chose the carrier and they didn't do enough background work to make sure the carrier was safe. Now that was, it, it it's rare, but when it happened, it shocked the whole industry and brokers said, look, you know, we're going to be responsible for these carriers. We have to choose them better. I, I get that. Not once have I ever seen anything that anybody is going to hold a freight broker responsible for a deleted truck. Th this whole story just sounds odd to me. Yeah, I don't know. Now, if we can it, only go by what we hear on the telephone, Kevin. So. Oh, absolutely, Bruce. I know how these stories go. Um, he does have a lot yeah, of parts, so, so that we won't know until he brings them here and know what we can reuse and can't reuse. Yeah. Now, I will say this. If he were leased to a carrier, then I could absolutely seeing a carrier come out with a policy that we will not lease or dispatch deleted trucks it would be much more likely that somebody might hold a carrier responsible for a deleted truck. Although I've never seen that anywhere either, that would at least make a little more sense that because in essence, the carrier, when they lease on that truck, they're taking some responsibility and control for that truck. They have the liability insurance, but I've never even seen that be an issue. I don't know. There might be some carriers out there that have that policy. I've never heard of it, but I am shocked that, that you use the word his broker is making him do this. Right. I, uh, I have a word of advice for people that are running their deleted trucks, especially the 389s, because it's easy to know. It's a 389. Just look at the headlights. But two days ago, I was sitting at a traffic light, and to my right was two Peterbilts. And the lead truck 
with that black on down the stacks. So immediately I saw the stacks. I looked at the headlights. I said, oh, that's a deleted truck. And I said to Debbie, there's a deleted truck. Just watch when he pulls out. You'll see the black smoke. And uh, it didn't roar black smoke, but there was, there was smoke. Right. And she said, how can you tell it's deleted? I said, well, look at the stacks. Right. Just look. They're black, 12, 14 inches down the back side. If you're going to run a 389 and it's deleted, have a step ladder and keep your stacks clean because, and whoever did the delete, have them set the ECM so you don't roar black smoke. It's a dead giveaway. Yeah. And these young kids with the diesel pickups that are doing the deletes that are roaring black smoke. And, and you know, there was a group there. They, uh, they thought it was really cool to smoke out anybody in a um, Prius. A Prius. Right. And, and that that has created problems. Yeah, sure. So has. the public sees all this stuff. And if I was a policeman and I was against deleted trucks, that's the first thing I would look at was be the stacks, the year of the truck, and then you know. Yeah, wouldn't be hard to find at all. I'm not to go ahead and do that. You know, these are our customers, but be careful. That's for sure. Pete, what else you got? You know, a truck starting out from a traffic light is a billboard. Yeah, that's Everybody right. Everybody sees it. <laughs> so, uh, one other thing, two other things. Um, one, um, FedEx and UPS uh, had weather delays. So if you're waiting for a package, um, it, it's going to be delayed. There's been just so much bad weather across the country, and they don't refund money for weather delays. So even if you paid for overnight freight and the weather's bad and it didn't get there, it's not getting paid. We've had this lately, uh, every day, guys calling, I didn't get my package. Right? It's delayed. It's stuck here. It's stuck there. Um, so just be patient. Um, it, it'll get there. You know, and I've you got an issue the- right now. Um, I'm not sure how to deal with i got to go figure it out. I, I'm not worried about the, ch- the shipping charges on this. I'm worried about the fact that when it gets here, it's not going to be any good. And I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. I just put in a large meat order from a new farm that we want to work with we may even start selling their meat in our store and uh, that shipment of meat is now stuck in the system somewhere well that stuff i mean you have to have it shipped overnight sometimes you can get away with second day in the winter time and they put enough dry ice in it but two days is max and now this box of meat is lost in the system somewhere and when it gets here and it's thought i'm gonna have to figure out who's paying for this yeah that's a lot different than shipping a gallon of catalyst right sit someplace a week but yeah you got you got uh, some food stuff that would definitely be a problem yeah i have a ton of stuff coming in right now i had just ordered a bunch of stuff and it all got stuck in this weather delay i I don't even care about the overnight charges it'll get here i'll get it that's fine but but this box of meat's kind of a big deal it was a pretty big order (laughs) how far was it coming kevin from where uh colorado it's coming from colorado yeah so Hmm. We will see uh, what's going to happen. And then, of course, I've got to, once it finally gets here and we figure out who's doing what, um, then i got to reorder it and wait for it to come back in again. So we'll see. And the last thing I got, I was doing some reading on Cummins' website and on death fluid. Um, there is a shelf life to it, which we know we can see bad death in tanks and stuff. But they broke it down as 18 months, 
in the container, sealed, under 77 degrees. <laughs> and how are we supposed nine, to know that? Well, right. So, and every nine degrees over 77, so it's in a shed and it's 90 outside, uh, it takes six months off the shelf life. Oh, that's a lot. And it is. And then also in the truck. So once you have it in your tank, in your vehicle, it's only good for six months. Now, there are conditions, I'm sure, like Bruce's Dodge stays in the garage in Colorado and it's constant temperature, it's out of the sun, um, a little bit longer. But, you know, it's something I don't think you have to buy a lot of to store down the road because it does have a shelf life. So be careful. Hey, you, you know, know what know I just thought expensive. of? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask my shop about this. Where I see this being a huge problem is the RV world. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know, I was just thinking about the only vehicle we own that uses DEF is the Sprinter. And I was, but Lisa actually uses that during the summertime as like her everyday vehicle. And the only time she really doesn't use it is when it's been really cold like this because I would have to winterize it and then we'd have to de-winterize it. And instead we just park it inside and we just don't take it out in, you know, in the extreme cold. So I don't have to worry about winterizing it, but she uses it enough that I just kind of went through the math. It probably wouldn't be a problem, but boy, I could see where a lot of people would, you know, the, the thing's been parked for six months and all they do is drive it from, you know, Michigan down to Florida or Florida back up to Michigan. Um, and then it sits again, and you'd have to believe that some of that def could get really old in the in the vehicle. Well, I can tell you the def that was in my 2016 Ram, and I just drove it to right after Christmas. I drove it to Ogden, Utah, and back. It was well over two years old because I bought it when Trump was president, and it it worked okay. It worked perfect. So, in fact, the truck hardly used. I used the, the tank holds about three gallon. I used maybe a gallon and a half to go out there and back. And so, well, here's a here's another good question. Then, what what are the consequences of using def that's gone bad? What does it do to the vehicle? Do we know? Leroy, do you have any thoughts on that? You're the def guy. What's that, Pete? It'll throw code for bad def quality. Oh. I would assume. Yeah. Oh, there's actually a code for that. Okay, but so will it derate then after a time? Yeah, if it can't convert NOx properly, it will derate. Okay. Huh. I wonder if it has something to do with the water parts of the, the you know, DEF is like 30% urea and then the rest of it's like water. I wonder if it has something to do with the water being evaporated off hey. and then that 32.5% mixture rate that it's supposed to be gets thrown off it you know the the mixture becomes more 50 percent urea because the water evaporated i have a story about this and a, and a question for for you guys and even for the audience so uh, uh, this is somebody we all know well um he has a small fleet of tow trucks um high no diesel tow trucks i don't know a lot about those engines but i, I don't think it matters it's a pretty generic issue so they hire a new tow truck driver Guy works for a couple weeks a month. I don't know the timeline on this. Uh, he has some issues, so they let him go. Right after they let him go, they have a, one of their trucks has all kinds of weird issues. Um, they tear the engine apart and find out that 
somebody put death in the radiator. They can smell it in, in all the coolant as they're taking this thing apart. And that stuff is horribly corrosive. So the engine needs a new head. They rebuild the whole thing, put it all back together. In the meantime, though, they decide to double check this particular driver had driven three different tow trucks during his time there. They checked them. All of them had death in the radiator. Only the first one um, had to be rebuilt. It seems like they caught the other two in time. So now we're months away from that. And the first truck that had the problem that they had to put a new head on now has a blown head gasket again. So they go in to tear it apart. And now everything that water or cool, the coolant comes in contact with inside that engine looks like it's been painted white. Hmm. Like some corrosion on it. That, so I had that phone call, Kevin. That's why the water passages were white. Why? Corrosion? Is that what it is? No, he called me and he said, man, it looks like somebody spray painted the water passages white. I know. I, I've never heard of that or seen that. I was wondering if anybody else did and, and what's causing. So I got the same phone call, Bruce. Uh, it was David Counts from Fleet Air Filter. Uh, and he told me I could talk right. about this and share it on the air. And, um, but, yeah, so you heard the same thing. He says they actually look like you spray painted them white. It's that uniform and solid of a coating, whatever it is. What would possess an employee to put death in somebody's radiator i never ever thoughts like that never would have entered my mind i i don't think it was intentional i i really don't and i will tell you i I have opened up the hood on some vehicles with def and it's not that they don't mark them well they they do but i've seen those fillers awful close to a lot of other fill you know i've seen one in one little corner where you've got the um, windshield washer fluid bottle and you can't really tell that that's what it is. It's just got a fill opening there. You've got the radiator cap right there and then they put the def cap right there, all three in the same spot. And, and I could just see somebody not very familiar. That? What's that? What kind of vehicle was that? Uh, actually, the Sprinter's not far off from that. And there's not, think about a Sprinter, when you open the hood, there's not much room there. You know, it's almost like a cab over. The engine sets so far back in, the hood opening, there's not much space. So all those fill and checks, everything's kind of crammed together on a lot of those vehicles. So, like on the Rams, the depth goes in right beside the fuel. But it's not like that. I, I would just assume all vehicles would have the depth be backed by the fuel tank. So on the like, Sprinter, the fuel tank's in an odd place. You open the driver door, and then you open a little door inside the driver door to get to the fuel fill, which it, it always it just feels awkward to me. When you pull up to the pump, you're all crowded right there by the door. You've got to open one door, open the other door. If it's bad weather, then you want to close the driver door. So then you got to reopen it to close the fuel door again. That, to me, seems like a horrible setup, but that's how the sprinters are. But the def is under the hood. And like I said, there's not a lot of room there. And 
you open it up and there's several things. You check the oil from there, you can fill, you got the coolant, you got the def, you got the washer fluid. And I could see somebody not very familiar with vehicles and in a hurry or not paying attention. I, I could see how it could be done. Wow. Hey, can I ask you a sprinter question? Sure. It's not DEF related. Yeah. Being you've owned two of them, the sprinters are converted by an RV company. Is that correct? Right. And whose conversion do you prefer? Um, hands down, not even close, Pleasure Way out of uh, Canada, Saskatchewan or Saskatoon. Pleasure Way. Maybe Saskatoon. Pleasure Way. Saskatoon. All right. So what about one done by Integra? Um, I'm looking at it. He's a retired doctor. And it's four-wheel drive. I didn't know they made a four-wheel drive. They do make a four-wheel drive. And, Bruce, you may be shot. Maybe not. Um, but if you, Pleasure Way makes a four-wheel drive conversion, a really nice one. Pleasure Way's conversion are really high quality. Um, they make a four-wheel okay. drive. That The base price on that's like 230000 Well, this one's you. For 90,000 with 6,500 miles on it. Um, how much is, is he going to use it? Well, you know, he's a retired doctor, so he took his first trip to Colorado from Maryland. He bought a used Ford Explorer, and he said, wow. I, had him, I told him several places to see along I-70, but he left a day late, so he didn't have time. But he said he really enjoyed the drive out and back. And so now he's thinking he needs to do more of this and uh, being enjoy the highway more. Being this, retired. Oh, this is a tiffin. This, oh. this is a tiffin. Oh, different story now. Not an Integra. So a, a tiffin, um, we have looked at them, and they are pretty darn close to the quality of the pleasure way tiffin is is what i would consider a top line conversion on a sprinter um, i didn't even know integra did one but i'm familiar with integra and that would be more of a mid-level and then you get down to the like winnebago is going to be your entry level uh, and they're still expensive yeah. i mean it, you're still going to pay you know well over a hundred you're probably going to pay 130 to 150,000 even for a winnebago these days and you're going to get up 170 180 on the mid level and they're getting close to 200,000 on the the higher level builds but tiffin builds a really nice sprinter okay it's called a tiffin c a h a b a 4x4 19sc yeah that that is that is a very high quality conversion. I, I would would not be afraid of that one at all. And that sounds like a pretty okay. darn good price. What year was it? Twenty two. Was For, reduced from one twenty nine ninety nine to ninety nine. So it's that thirty one thousand off. That's an incredible price, actually. They must be getting hammered. I haven't watched them because we're obviously not in the market for one. We're really happy with ours. For a while, they were so hot. I mean, I think it's possible we sold our first one for more than we even paid for it. I forget now. Um, so this has two couches in the back where the bed would be. So this apparently the couches pulled down and make the bed. Correct. Yeah, there's, there's, there's several different did? layouts like like ours has a bench seat in the very back that is really like a scissor couch or bed. It, it just flattens out and becomes the bed. And then if you want to 
ride in it. You can turn it into a bench seat. But I'll tell you this, if I were really, I think Pleasure Way should go to a higher bed that is just a permanent bed and create more storage underneath instead of the scissor bed. Because I will tell you, there is no way I will ride in the back on that bench. It is, it is a horrible ride. The sprinters are a fantastic ride up in the front seats. But that bench seat is so far behind that back axle that the movement is horribly amplified. And it, it's just not comfortable to ride back there at all. So you wouldn't sleep there while Lisa's driving? Oh, no. No way. No, the ride back there behind that axle is, is not good at all. All right, so these two seats run parallel with the van, so you can walk and go out the back door. It, it, that's, that's kind of a nice setup. The, the other setup, okay. like I said, I've seen where they build the bed up much higher and create a bunch of storage underneath. I hope our listening public doesn't mind us going off the subject of semi-trucks every now and then. It, we're sticking with vehicles. It, it, you know, it's all relative. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Leroy, we okay. haven't heard from you this morning other than you're awake. What, what do you got? Well, I had one thing about the, the dev tank where Pete was saying that it, it gets too warm, right? I remember when I had that Volkswagen Passat, the dev tank was in the trunk, and it was a black car. Uh, wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> just cooking. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess if I mean, you didn't use that frequently, it would go bad quick. That yeah. thing got probably like 3,000 miles per gallon def because it, it got like 50-some, 50, 50, 60 miles per gallon. Right. And then 2 or 3% of that, that thing's using two to 3,000 miles per gallon def. So I think in the entire time I've owned that car, which wasn't that long, maybe two or three years, I only put def in it a handful of times. Right. So it probably was just like they're just cooking. Yeah. Also, you know, the def probably wasn't cooking because it's Volkswagen. This whole age of def may be a lot like other things we talk about. You know, this transmission can only handle 1,400 foot-pounds of torque, and we put 2,000 through it, and it does just fine. You know, I, I have a feeling it's another one of those limits that, that you could probably break that limit pretty regularly and nothing goes wrong. Yeah. What what I will take away from this conversation is don't go out and buy extra death for your pickup trucks or your motor homes and store it in your garage for several years because you've got a good price on it. Just don't do that. On semi trucks, we don't have that issue. Right. They're buying yeah. it every every several days. But don't buy it in the two and a half gallon plastic jugs and store it at home well, for vehicles. But here's something else I, I'm going to I was doing change. that. I would buy two boxes at a time, so I was buying five gallon at a time. So now I'll just buy two and a half at a time. Yeah, well, here's something I'm going to change. For me, it just seemed like a good idea. It's easy when you've got def in a jug and you keep it in the garage to just keep topping off the def. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. It's just right there. I grab a jug. I'll top it off. I'll never have to think about def or, you know, know what the level is. But, you know, we do let it sit quite a bit in the winter. I don't think I'm going to keep topping it off. I think I'm going to let it get down to half or quarter or below before I put new in. Yeah, I let it get below a quarter. That way I can put the two and a half gallon in the Dodge. I think that's what I'm going to start doing, just letting it get down lower and not just keep topping it off all the time because then you've got old stuff sitting in there more. Right. So we did learn something. That's right. That was a a worthwhile conversation. 
All right. Anything and, else, Leroy? Well, I just wanted to continue just a little bit more on that sure. same topic. Uh, I did get a text from one of our remote uh, tuners, and he said he had this question for a supplier, and they told him the same thing as what my conjecture was, was it's a water evaporation issue, and then the urea becomes over-concentrated. So my response to that would be, I think it's worthwhile for, I mean, if this is an issue where you let deficit around, I would buy a refractometer. I mean, I think you can get them on Amazon, and then just test the depth in your jug before you put it in. So if you have an RV or something, you don't, a vehicle that uses depth that you don't put in a lot, just test the depth before you put it in. That's okay, Leroy, hey. what's a refractometer? Uh, I don't know exactly how it works besides the fact that it probably uh, has a refraction um, thing. But basically what it is, it just kind of looks like a small telescope. You put a drop of liquid on it, um, and then there's a mirror that goes up to it, and then you look at it through the light. And I'm guessing it measures how light refracts through that liquid. And when you look up into the light with it, there'll be like a line around like 32%. That means the def is good. So if you put your drop of def on there, you looked up at the light, and then you saw the line was at 50%, then you know that def is bad before you even put it in. So how much is this refract? <laughs> say it again and say it's slower. Uh, refractometer. Oh, right. Say it again. Refractometer. I can look it up on Refractometer. Yeah, you're saying it correctly. And how much do they? How much do they cost? Uh, the I just pulled up on Amazon. It's nineteen dollars, eighteen dollars, eighteen dollars, twenty dollars. Hey, so they're like wow. twenty dollars. Hey, Bruce. So it, yes. Um, one, you may be familiar with this. When we did the Evans coolant conversions, we would use a refractometer okay. at the end because you try to get all the water out of there. Okay. Yeah, that's what we use in our shop for uh, checking depth quality when we're having, um, okay. you know, SCR issues. Hey, uh, they, that's what the troubleshooting tells you to to use as well. They say use a refractometer to test depth quality. That it's makes the simplest, sense. most inexpensive way to to check depth quality. Yeah, and that's I mean, especially a, if you have it in your shelf, I mean, just put a drop on there before you put it in your tank. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I may grab one. I know I had one around when I used to do the Evans conversions when we were doing that, but I have no idea where it might be. So we learned something else today. Well, we're, I'm about to go back to a topic that I called completely wrong and uh, correct this. I'm a little shocked by this, but, but this is important that this is coming out. We've been telling people for a long time, don't delete these trucks. Uh, I'm going to go back to that because Joel just sent me a message um, i said i could see maybe a carrier doing this but i haven't heard much of that i'm shocked that a brokerage would do it but i guess it's a pretty regular thing joel works a lot with schneider through their brokerage and he says they have to certify that they are emissions carb compliant to get top shelf loads doesn't say just to work with them but to, to get their better loads, which is why we talk about building relationships with these brokers. So you get the freight that never gets posted anyway. That's the whole point of doing that. Um, he's actually saying that a lot of free PLs, which are basically brokerages, um, ask their, his brother runs their trucking company, um, to do on-site audits to be considered top-tier carriers. 
So it sounds like brokerages aren't really enforcing it across the board, but they are saying if you want to work with us as a, as a closer partner and get our best freight, you're, we're going to check to make sure you're compliant. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I did you know, not know that was wrong? going on. So, you know, we're okay. worried about it. Well, you know, the government's worried about the, the what pollutes, and they're making changes. And, and if we got these deleted trucks off the road, we wouldn't have to go as far with um, the next set of emissions. But I was also on Common Sight and read where the when the X-15s came out, they were allowed four grams per horsepower hour to pollute. That was acceptable. Um, the 2027 um, set of emissions, it has to be down to 0.03 grams per horsepower hour of NOx. So they're trying to reduce it that much. We That's better get Dr. Jane Gates to make the catalyst stronger, huh? I think so. We have to. Instead of burning seventy percent of the soot, we better burn ninety-five percent of the soot and carbon. Yeah, there you go. All right. Um, do we have anything else? Calls are starting to pile up. Oh, I, I have the announcement. If we've got everything else done, we'll we'll talk about the announcement. I'm done. It, no, Roy had something else about a DD fifteen. Oh, um, well, I mean, I kind of took up my slot with talking about the death thing, but I mean, we just. We got a DD15 in the shop that has the the famous issue where it goes through knock sensors like crazy. Uh, we just kind of started the diagnostics this morning. Uh, haven't quite found anything yet, but um, yeah, we're in the process. We miles are on it. No, I don't even remember. I think we lost Kevin. I'm still here. Oh, okay. All right. All of a sudden, everything got clearer and louder. All right. So, okay, go ahead. Um. Like I said, I don't have much to report on yet, but I'm hoping that uh, we come up with some sort of solution because I get that call a lot where people with DDA series engines go through knock sensors like crazy. Like, well, they'll put like six in within a year. So I'm hoping I can sort of pinpoint some sort of issue. I finally got one in, in front of me, so maybe we'll find a solution to this. So Leroy, is an X-15 or an ISX Cummins Knock sensor similar to the DD15? Yeah, they're basically the same sensor, yep. Can we put the Cummins in the Detroit? I don't think that you can because uh, knock sensors are smart devices. So what I mean by smart device is that they communicate with the ECM uh, with data transfer. When you have an analog sensor, that just essentially means that it communicates to the ECM with just a voltage change. So you would see maybe the voltage swing from one volt to three volts. Where if you have a smart sensor, it communicates with just data packets. So it'll send messages like my, um, my NOx sensor is not up to temp yet. Or it might say my NOx reading is at this. Or I need to go into warm-up mode. Or I'm having an internal failure. So smart sensors have a lot more going on. And they're, they're programmed that way. And the ECM is programmed to talk to it. So it's sort of like a language. So you can't put a French speaker inside of a, you know, a Mandarin country and expect them to communicate back and forth. And that would be something similar what would happen if you were to put a, a common sensor inside of a, a DD series. Okay. So it's not, it's not a part that you could make. Could probably make one. I mean, man made them. Another one can make it the same thing, but I don't know if it's quite, uh, quite worth it. 
there. <laughs> on a vehicle, on a car, if you when you start them and they have to run their 1,500 RPMs for 35, 40 seconds, is that to warm up the sensors? Uh, say, say that one more time, and you kind of broke up on us for some reason. Whenever I start the Audis, they run at 1,500 RPM. Even if the engine's warm, and you, and let's say it's been sitting for a half hour, but there's still four bars of temperature, it's 85 degrees outside, it'll still sit there and run at 1,500 RPM for 30, 40 seconds. Is that to warm up the sensors? Um, it could be. It could be to warm up the catalytic converter. It's, I'm not real sure. Uh, I don't play a lot with gas engines, but my... My guess would be it has something to do with uh, warming the cats up. Okay. All right. All right. So. 75,000 miles on it, along to one box, which potentially could need a one box to get mileage. Also, we want to do diagnostics to make sure, because it's such an expensive repair, we need to make sure it needs one before we put one on. The easiest thing to do is just replace absolutely everything and then just... You know, and that's fine. what most <laughs> dealerships do, unfortunately. When you have that code, they just throw everything on it. It's going to fix it because there's nothing they didn't change. One box, wiring harness, that's, sensor. It's like having a misfire and being like, I'm going to replace is, the driver. <laughs> is, is that truck running the max mileage catalyst? I don't know. Eric scheduled him in, so I hadn't spoken to the gentleman. Okay. All right. Well, I think today's going to run, just... run, run over and ask Eric if that truck's running, if he knows that truck's running the catalyst. Okay, I can do that. I think today's just going to be one of those weird days, because before I make my announcement, I just thought about some, something else I wanted to ask Leroy. It's way, way kind of out there. Leroy? No. What, what do you know Sorry, about EMPs? What do I know about EMPs? Yeah. Uh, they're in science fiction um, novels frequently and they're cool and they yeah. black out stuff yeah so <laughs> it, and you realize that we could have kind of a natural emp um through a, a solar flare uh, from the sun itself right i have heard that yeah there was an event in the late 1800s called the carrington event and the only kind of technology we had at the time were were telegraphs so we had telegraph lines kind of like phone lines, and we had telegraph operators, and they could send messages back and forth with Morse code. And we had this CME, a coronal mass ejection, when a solar flare explodes off the sun with so much energy, if it comes in, that happens from the sun a lot, but it just ends up out in space, and it's no big deal. If it happens in a way where it's directed and actually hits the earth, those the 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 telegraph operators the the terminals caught on fire the wires melted it basically destroyed the system there was so much energy and they said that that could happen at any time and it will happen eventually it's just a it's just a matter of time or an emp can be triggered by exploding nuclear weapons up in the atmosphere and and so there are two ways that this could occur and the problem is when it happens, it wipes out electrical circuits. I mean, just absolutely wipes them out. The prediction is that modern vehicles, anything with any kind of computerized circuitry to make that vehicle run, will not run if we had a solar flare or an EMP. Right. Makes sense. 
makes sense. So, and this is what I'm wondering. I have found a company that makes a device, and it's an EMP shield, and they, they claim the only... The only way to test this, the only group that has the ability to test an EMP-like event is the Department of Defense. They, I, I guess it, obviously it's really tough to test for this because you've you got to generate incredible amounts of voltage and energy. And so uh, the DOD, I guess, can test for this and they harden their vehicles or they're supposed to be. Uh, and this device has been tested. With everything you know about electricity and energy and EMPs, does it seem like that you could protect a vehicle with this? And it's not even that complicated of a device. Basically, what it does is it reacts within, was it one nanosecond? I think the Department of Defense's criteria is it has to react within 10 nanoseconds and it has to disconnect all the circuitry and that's what protects this it, it kind of cuts all the circuitry off so the energy can't get to it and it has to react in a certain amount of time with a certain amount of voltage present and i guess the the um the criteria for the department of defense is it has to happen in 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 under 10 nanoseconds and this device has been tested it does it in one nanosecond does all of this sound like it could be possible um from the very little that I know about EMPs, I, I don't think so, especially if it has to do with, you know, large changing magnetic fields. I don't know. It, it seems like you could still induce voltages into, into circuits because everything has a natural capacitance and inductance, especially wiring and stuff like that. So, I mean, you can induce a voltage into a wire that doesn't have anything hooked to it. I mean, that's kind of how, like how motors work. So if you added this big changing electric field that you could induce voltage into a wire that causes a spark or something, I think that's going to happen with, with, without a shield. Um, but I, I, I don't know enough about that kind of stuff to say, but my part, guess would be no. Part of what I'm running up against trying to research this is that's the answer I get from some really, really intelligent people is the answer seems to be we can't be entirely sure about this. Yeah, I, I think it just depends on the. So how many how many nanoseconds in a second? Uh, well, a millisecond is a million, and then a microsecond is more than that, a billion, and then a nano is more than that. So trillion. I think quite a trillion. A nanosecond is more than a billion in one second. I think so. Yeah. I'll ask the Google gods. Wow. Yeah, one trillion. Yeah, wow. That's crazy. One trillion nanoseconds in a second. Yes. We don't have to worry about that with big cams. Well, that is, that's, the, that's the case. Any, any vehicle that's simply mechanical would not be affected by this at all. But they're claiming that vehicles with circuitry of any kind would just be disabled. So when you're di when if if it hits, will it just flash and give you a miss, or will it just stop your vehicle? So all the stories, it, if you're in the right position and you happen to be looking up in the sky and it's a nice clear day, there might be a flash present. There won't be a sound. You won't have any other real indication that that either now a solar flare 
we would have some warning that it's coming, not that we could do much about it. Uh, there are some things you could do. Uh, we could have up to days of warning. I actually have an app that monitors all the activity on the sun. And when they have these hotspots, they start saying, look, this hotspot's developing. Actually, right now, one of the reasons I've been talking about it again, we are at our highest level of solar activity right now than we've seen in a long, long time. There's all kinds of solar flares popping off all over the sun. They're just not hitting us. Sometimes they do, but they're not that strong. You might have some phone interruptions, you know, bad cell phone signals, things like that. But there's a lot of solar activity right now. If it were a true solar event, we, we may have two or three days warning that it could be coming. And then there's a lot of calculations. When's it going to hit? What part of the earth is? Will it hit? Who's going to be affected? But if it's a, an EMP um, with a nuclear weapon and they exploded, I think it's like 20 miles up, if I remember right, um, you wouldn't even know it happened. Okay? And the vehicles will just stop instantly. I mean, they, they just they stop and nothing works. Also, Bill wanted to, to let everyone know I was off by a little bit, by like... 999 billion uh one nano is only one billion oh one billion a for a nano okay I, a little off. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't read trillion, trillion yeah, yeah. Uh, close yeah. enough this is the guy you want working on your stuff you're splitting hairs at this point yeah off right? by a small margin <laughs> well anyway i'm going to keep researching on that but it doesn't sound like there's uh there's any definitive answers to this one let us know when it's going to happen, Kevin. You know what's kind of funny to me is, I, I don't know if this has any like actual effect, but people are like, oh, can't hold your cell phone too close to your brain because it you know, messes with your brain. But if there's this big of an EMP like effect, how does that like affect your body? Like, does that like fry neurons in your brain or something? You know what I mean? Well, you know, it, that's an interesting thought too. My guess would be that it's the, the closest thing that has happened to humans that, that we might be able to correlate would be being struck by lightning. It, it's a huge voltage through your body all at once. And I kind of studied people who have been struck by lightning the rest of their life is really odd. They just have weird, odd medical issues and conditions, and, and it messes up a body to be hit with that much voltage. Yeah, probably doesn't end well, yeah. Well, maybe, so maybe that's how the zombie apocalypse is going to start. It's going to be the EMP mm -hmm. that turns us all into zombies. I got my tinfoil hat on. I'm liking this. There you go. All right, well, I, I'm going to keep working on that. Because I've done a lot of research, and there are a lot of people that claim these devices will work, but then there are a lot of people that say, well, you just can't be sure. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Bruce, here's, uh, here's the scoop on the CMC. So just to give you some history on how we came to this point, we did our last CMC in 2018. You guys have always been a huge part of it. Um, the event had gotten so big that 2018 took us almost six months to get prepared for it. Actually, some things we were doing almost a year ahead of time. It was a lot of work for us as a company, and it, it just and, and the cost of putting it on to that big of a group for five days got so big that not only was it tying us all up for a long time, we really weren't making a lot of money on it. 
I mean, when you look at the numbers, you would think 400 people at that price, you must have made a fortune, and we weren't. We, we just, there's a lot of expense to putting that on. So in 2018, we decided to take a year off, which was 2019, and I was going to spend time rethinking how we should put on this event. And one of the ideas I had to be able to put even more material into the program, but not have to be at a physical location for five full days, and, and actually I had more material that I wasn't even using, we started thinking about a hybrid where there was a live event, but then there was also virtual training throughout, so we could cover a lot more material. So I was working on that idea, and then COVID hit, and all the events went away. So, so we just forgot all about the CMC for a couple of years because there was really nothing you could do. Um, I happened to get a call from Toby Young, who the, the Young family basically owns um, the Louisville Truck Show. And this is their 52nd year, and Toby is third generation. His grandfather started that show 52 years ago. Um, so Toby called us and said, look, we're, we're going to reinvent um, the truck show. Not, not necessarily the truck show itself, but their idea was to create more trucking events in Louisville the week of the show. He said, look, everybody from the industry comes here. It's the biggest event of the year, and we should have more going on that week. So he said, we're going to start reaching out to partners and creating more stuff to go on that week. And he said, we would really like you to be the education provider for the owner-operator small fleet world. What kind of a program could you put together and would you want to? So we thought about it for a while and I said, maybe this is the way we should bring the CMC back, that we have a live event every year at the truck show which is an official part of the truck show itself. So we are working directly with uh, Toby Young and, and Matt's and the whole show to make this an official part of the show. You'll, you'll pay and register through, um, through the event. Um, it will be prior to the truck show itself. So the truck show starts on Thursday. We will have a full day on Wednesday an event in the evening on Wednesday, and then we'll have a half a day on Thursday, and then you can walk right into the truck show and still have three days on the truck show. We will continue that program with a virtual um, training online, like a Zoom meeting where I can still present. We can show graphs and charts and pictures, and um, it, it's about as close to being in person as we can get. Uh, um, it, it, that program is gonna go an entire year. The CMC now is much, much bigger as far as content. Um, so the, the plan we're working on right now, and not all of this is set yet. What is set is we are going to have a live event at Louisville this year. What I'm hoping we can pull off is that the entire program is going to be in place. You will come to Louisville this year for a day and a half of in-person training. We will continue the virtual training for an entire year. I, I am going to teach everything I've ever learned about running a truck in the last 40 years. 
Everything from buying the truck to building a small fleet. How do you get that first truck as profitable as possible? Then once you've got that, if you want to expand, how do you take that knowledge and buy the second truck and start building a fleet? So it, it covers everything I've ever learned about this stuff. Uh, and then you would come back again next year to Louisville for another day and a half or, or the, you know, the end and the graduation through the program. I'm in a, I've built this program. The best analogy I can come up with is like a franchise. So if you look at a franchise, whether it's a, a restaurant or carpet cleaning or, or whatever business might be franchised, they've taken and built a model where it's almost impossible to fail. Uh, that's kind of the point of a franchise, that if you follow their model, you almost can't fail. And, and when you look at the success rate behind franchised restaurants as compared to in truly independent restaurants, it's not even close. The truly independent restaurants fail horribly. I mean, they have a horrible track record. Franchise restaurants have an excellent track record. They almost never fail. It's pretty rare. Um, so we're kind of taking that franchise idea and that's how I've built this whole program. I'm going to show you exactly how to buy a truck, what kind of truck to buy, depending on the operation, really detailed, what inspections should be done on that truck. We're, we're putting together all the products and services and companies and partners you need to make this really successful. Um, and by the way, you guys might not be aware of this, but you're a part of this whole program because we're we're going to recommend. Well, we appreciate that. We're going to recommend your entire model and the way you do things. Like if you want to guarantee you're going to be successful, if you want to do every step you can, you would first off work with you guys before you even buy the truck. You guys can help them find the right specs, what um, do the inspections. Uh, maybe immediately, well, not maybe, part of the program is that after you buy it, it goes and gets the Hawkeye report, or it gets that before you buy it, if you can work that out. Um, and then we go through the, the modifications of what could we do to this truck to make it as fuel and maintenance efficient as it can possibly be. Um, we're putting together all the products and services and companies in place. So it's like a franchise for a single truck carrier with their authority. And then the next step will be, we'll teach you how to expand that if you decide to. Or we will teach you how to run the most profitable single truck operation you can run. Um, so it's, it's really in-depth. There's a lot of companies involved. It's a, it's a big program. And we are kicking it off this year at Louisville one way or another. The whole program may not be in place when we kick it off, but we're pretty close. Uh, so that's um, in this this really we just got the final uh, piece put into place on this last week. Uh, we just had the meeting yesterday where we decided this is going to happen. Um, We've got another meeting this after. We've got meetings all this week because we're, we're pretty close to the date. So we've got a lot of work to pull this off. Um, it still is the CMC, but now it stands for Certified Master Carrier. So we need to be there 
arrive on Tuesday to do this on Wednesday as opposed to arriving on Wednesday? Possibly, yes. I'm trying to figure out my whole schedule for that day and a half of training. And some, um, some we, I may want speaking live at the event this year. And some companies will be a part of the program later down the line throughout the virtual training just depends and I, I'm still working on putting all that material together so I, I letting you guys know because if anybody is going to speak you're probably going to be um, one of those and it's just really going to depend on the schedule and that's what I'll be working so on. We, so we need we need to make our like I'll be flying in but uh, Pete and Bill they need to come a day early and Leroy will you be attending this year? I believe so. Okay so we all need to arrive on Tuesday to be ready to do this on Wednesday, along with setting up our booth. Yes, very possibly. So, and I'm in the same boat. I'm trying okay. to make, you know, travel arrangements now. But, you know, with an event this big, normally I sometimes fly in late the night before the morning of when I fly in. Um, I, I need to get there significantly mm -hmm. earlier this year just to make sure I'm there, especially with the way travel's been lately. Uh, but it, it is official, it is happening, um, and we're pretty excited about it. And this will be CMC 2.0 certified master carrier going forward. I think it's a great idea. I'm glad you're doing it, and we look forward to being part of it. We love that. And like I said, there, there's the, the CMC, the training itself, but then even bigger than that is, is this franchise model that we've built, and we want you to be a big part of that. Here's the only difference between this and a true franchise. You know, like I said, the franchise has worked out all these things, your suppliers, your partner companies, everything has worked out for you. The difference is in a true franchise, you don't have any choices. You buy into the franchise, which is expensive to buy the franchise initially. And then those franchise companies pay a fee forever based on their revenue. A percentage of your revenue goes to the franchising company forever. And you don't get to make any choices. But people buy franchises because they succeed. We're, we're making it, I think, even better. We'll put the whole franchise model together. We'll show you exactly what you should do every step of the way. But you get to make all the choices. We don't force you to do any of this stuff. If you want to find some other shop that you think might do this better, you're free to go do that. We're just going to say, look, we've been doing this a long time. We've worked with a lot of companies. We've found the best of the best in every category, and here they are, and here's how you work with them in this program. That's great news. All right. So we're excited. It's a lot of work, um, but I, I'm really excited about it. It's good to get back to this, and I, I love the way we've got it set up. And um, to have a partner as big um, as you know, the show management at, at Matt's, and we are now an official part of the Matt's program itself is a pretty big deal. And, and we've got some other pretty big partners working mm -hmm. on it with us. And I have a bit of news I forgot to mention. All right. I've been dealing with the engineers at Peterbilt, but 228 gear ratios and 12-speed auto shifts. They said, well, we also have the 13-speed and the 18-speed in auto shift 
Now, I didn't know that. I didn't know you could buy a new 18-speed Eaton Auto Shift. And with the Packard MX-13 and the X-15 Cummins, you may be able to order a 228 gear ratio in the very near future. We're still working on that. 228, is that going to be matched to a direct drive or a single overdrive? Single over. Or even a double over, you just won't run it in double over. When I first spoke to the one engineer, he got back, he said, that's 127 mile an hour truck. I said, but yeah. we're running in direct. So we're so, only using the overdrive gears when you're going down long grades or you're empty. or um, You know, they, when you're coming down off those plateaus in on I-70 in Utah, God, I think sometimes you're going downhill for 30 miles. Uh, you can just flick it up a gear or two and uh, just let it roll. So... But, uh, with your working with the engineers on this so far, have they mentioned um, what RPM they would be comfortable going down to with that engine? Uh, we're, we're talking to keep it in the 12, 1250 RPM at 65 to 70 miles an hour in direct. Okay. So not really aggressive downspeeding, which makes sense. So, okay. No, no, no. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> All right. Boy, we should probably my goal get is my goal is not to see how low we can get the RPM. It's my goal is to see how little boost we can use to make the truck go 65 and 70. Got it. All right, we are going to get to some phone calls. Let's get started today in Illinois. Bill, welcome to the program. How y'all doing today? Good. What can we help you with? Well, first off, Leroy, I replaced that uh, DEF uh, dozer thing, and it cleared it all up. There was crystals, and it was a leak. There was a small little leak coming out of that. So I replaced it, did a force streak, and it works great. But here's a question I want to ask you guys, because this was the first for me. I was in Rochelle this weekend. The highest it got was zero. The lowest it got was negative 10. I did uh, treated the fuel according to how the bottle is. And then I also used the uh, um, fuel boring catalyst, awesome product. I went out there at negative five, started up the truck. She started, she, she started, you knew the engine was cold. She started fine. But then the engine, it would, get, it would get to normal oil pressure. And once in a blue moon, I'm assuming because it was thick, because it's all full synthetic, it would go from 50 to like 80, real split second, then it'd go back down. And then it would go back up a little bit, and then it would come back down, and then it leveled off. But how hard... Are you, are you talking about oil pressure? Yes. Okay, and what engine is this? X-15. Wait, wait a minute. Great. Go, no, watch. go, go back ahead. a second. You said it was full synthetic? Full synthetic. Then because why? I, I'm the same truck that I had brought it up to um, Pittsburgh Power to get all that work done. So why, why, are, why do you think the oil was really thick? Just from the oil pressure, from the oil pressure going from normal to like super high and then it back down well, real quick. Well, hold on a second. First off, the, the whole reason why synthetic is so much better in the wintertime is because it doesn't thicken like that. And if you ever want to prove this to yourself, go buy a gallon of, of traditional oil and a gallon of full synthetic and set them outside when it's that cold and then go try to pour them out of the bottle. You'll see a huge yeah. difference. Now, I heard, oh, did yeah. you... Yeah. Did you say 40 to 80 pounds of pressure? 
Fifteen. No, it, it, normally uh, operating t- operating pressure is like uh, I would say thirty five, and then once in a blue moon, because when I first started it up, it go there, and then would crank up to like eighty pounds, and then would drop back down to normal uh, oil pressure. That can't be oil. Something else is causing that. The oil can't go from so thick that it's creating eighty pounds of pressure down to normal in seconds. Huh? Well, Could I mean, it be normal. the pressure regulator? That's what I'm thinking. It, it, the there's something else causing like this, not engine. the oil itself. Yeah. Well, it, it's working good now. I mean, back into normal, um, normal temperatures, as I call it. I, I'm not saying it's, it's not working. I'm not even. Bus. I'm not even saying there's anything wrong with it. All I'm saying is you yeah. can't correlate that 80 pounds of oil pressure to the oil being thick. And then one second later, it being 40 pounds or 35. or It's not thick oil causing that reading of 80. There's something else going on. What do you think? What do you think like a relief valve got stuck or something? Yeah, I would think it would be in the pressure relief valve. I wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't be it. too concerned about it when it's really no. cold. So, I mean, you have a clearance issue. What happens if the, the bore is on the minus and the plunger's on the plus? Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when I got it's question, 35, so. 40 degrees, everything's fine. But when it's 10 below, things do change. Yeah. Now, does does the extreme cold really beat up the engine when you're when it first starts up? Because I know my batteries took a beating this this uh this weekend because it was so damn cold. But I'm just curious. You weren't at a place where you end? could. Huh? Were, were you at home or a place where you could plug it in? No, I don't have a b- engine block here. All I had was a tri pack. An S bar heater and that tri pack is hooked to the radiator to the truck. So yeah, I mean she was just a running. So Okay. Well if your tri pack's keeping the radiator warm and the coolant should be circulating through the engine. Yeah. So you should be okay. Okay, okay. 'Cause I was I was wondering how much damage or whatnot does a really really froze up frozen engine at negative ten would really beat up on an engine trying to start it up, but He's a good truck. Well, I let it run for. I let it idle for like an hour, got it up normal temperature, and on the way I went. So, yeah. Uh, I was always wondering. Serious. That's all. When we years ago, there was a video that just appeared on the on social media. It showed a. I'd say it was an old big cam 400 starting, and it was well below zero. And we'd get them started, and they would run on two or three cylinders, and they would bang and pop and white smoke pouring out the stack. And you think, wow, that can't be good on that engine. And, and uh, yes, we want to we try to plug them in and keep them warm or have some type of auxiliary heater. But uh, your chances of spinning a rod or main bearing are greater at that point. But we did it for years and didn't have issues. These are new electronic engines. They're amazing how they start when it's cold compared yeah, to how the mechanicals did. And with the advancement of oils, so the fact that he's running synthetics is going to make a big difference. It's not like he's running 20, 50 mineral base in there at that temperature where, you know, oil is not going to flow. Right. You know, it's something like that. Right. bearing issues. But, you know, 1040 synthetic, like you said, it pours pretty thin whether it's 20 degrees outside or 80 degrees outside. It, it pours the same pretty much. You know, years ago, we used to take charcoal and build fires under trucks to get temperature so we could get them started. 
And that's in that was in Pittsburgh, not North Dakota. So Yeah, well, you know, Bruce, I, I was telling you about that uh, 1970 Ford tractor I've got. And there's a couple things about that thing I'm pretty impressed with on the engine. Uh, that it started at about four degrees, uh, no starting fluid, started hard. Like you said, it, it, that thing, it's only a three-cylinder. When it first starts, sounds like it's running on one. And it's banging and popping. And, uh, but it started pretty nice with, uh, with no starting fluid, which I was happy with. The other thing I was a little shocked about, I've been working it pretty hard. I've been plowing the driveway. I've been moving a lot of snow. And uh, the other morning, I went to check the oil. And when I pulled the stick out, I panicked because I thought there's no oil on that stick. And, you know, I'm still getting to know this thing. I don't know how much oil it uses, but I've been checking pretty regularly. And when I first pulled it out, I'm like, there's no oil on the stick. And then I started looking closer and it was a little dark in the garage. I got my flashlight out. I couldn't see it because it was still so clean. That was good to see. Amazing. I know. Pretty impressed with that. You know, you'd you'd mentioned ether. And a lot of people don't want to use ether. But there was a father-son team, Frank Bursick and little Frankie Bursick. And Frank had an NTA and a Pete, and the son had a small cam 350 that we had making a lot of power. And it was well below zero, and I watched that father and son team start that truck. And one would be outside just giving a little at a time of ether just to sweeten the air. Yeah. And to start those trucks, because on that NTA, that small cam 400, the pistons were 13 and a half to one compression ratio. So super low compression ratio. Pete, was it 13 and a half or 13.7? Do you recall? I thought it was 13.5, 13 and a half. 13.5, okay. So, and they would just stand there and just, just give it a little spit. Every so often when the engine would want to die, and they never rattled the engine, and the ether worked perfect that way. I'm, I'm thinking... And, oh, go ahead, Bruce. Whenever we were working with the John, I forget his name, he was from Ohio, on the pulling truck. It was a big cam, and I had Cummins was working with us, and we had it out at the Cummins factory. I think... Those pistons were machined on to 12 to 1, even in the summertime, to get the engine to run. We used almost a whole can of ether. Wow. And we had this engine out in front of the engineering center, towed it out on a low boy. I got to drive it out on one of our 800-horsepower big cams in a 359. That was a lot of fun. But we unloaded. Now, we didn't even get it off the low boy, and... A lot of Cummins engineers are out in the parking lot, and John goes to start it, and I'm working the ether, and we used almost a whole can of ether. We smoked out the whole building, <laughs> and one person ran out, thought the building was on fire, and they were going to call the fire department. We had so much white smoke, <laughs> and uh, all these Cummins engineers are standing around, smiles on their face. They loved it, and then John was doing burnouts in the parking lot with this thing, and it was at about 1,200, 12 or 1,400 horsepower big cam. And uh, so it took, in the summertime, wow, almost a full can of ether before the engine would stay running. That's crazy. You know, um, I mean, we have pictures of that in our driver. Is that picture still in the driver's lounge? 
And that's I, okay. look, I haven't been in the driver's lounge for a while. I'll have to check. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. You know, Bruce, I, it seems to me like one of my early trucks, and I'm thinking it might have been the GMC Astro with the big Cam 350. One of my trucks, and I'm pretty sure it was factory, had a, a ether injection system to start it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It went right into the crossover. Yeah. Had the little nozzle went right into the crossover. So that's where we a lot of times would hook up a turbo boost gauge because the ether bottle was missing and uh, all the stuff was gone. But if if I had to go out and start my new truck and it was well below zero, I I wouldn't have a problem giving just a little snort of ether just to uh, keep from cranking if it happens to want to crank. Yeah, I don't think it would be any big deal. Like you said, these new modern engines start so much better. Yeah, I've seen customers in in the old shop with the old big cam days uh, come to pick their truck up. It sat for a couple days. It was one of those deals. They dropped it off. They had to uh, make their way back. It was cold out, and they would just light the truck up with ether. Uh, No finesse at all. It was, they would just (laughs) the airplane or jump in a truck and it would rock and rattle and and, and just, oh my God, I'd I'd cringe thinking, oh, this engine's coming apart in our parking lot. That does sound Uh, horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised how many guys that that did that didn't have the finesse to, you know, just enough to keep it running. That's all you need to do. Sounds like repeat business to me. (laughs) I'd be selling these. (laughs) A little bit more. We we never needed that. Well, you know, the, um, I'd sell it in a fire extinguisher size. So something we had that we did years ago, the old big cams and K's that were high horsepower would run really rough during startup. You have low compression pistons, you have slow timing, you have big injectors. And unlike an electronic engine that will monitor the metering and the timing of the fuel, these engines didn't. And it was just dumping fuel in at the rate it was supposed to. But we put a two-cylinder cutoff on it. So we ran two fuel pump solenoids, and when they were both energized, all six cylinders would fire. So you'd fire the truck up on all six cylinders, and then in the cab was the switch, and we would cut off power to the one solenoid that would cut off fuel to two cylinders, which at that point you'd think the truck would run like garbage, and it would smooth the engine right out. It was amazing. I, I, it's hard to wrap your head around it. It's running rough, and you eliminated two of the four cylinders, and it would smooth out. Well, which the reason work harder to build heat in the other cylinders is why it works. See, it takes it takes to idle a big cam or a fourteen liter engine, and I'm sure all of them are very similar. It takes one point three horsepower to idle. That's not a lot of heat. No, one point three horsepower. And so it's not enough to burn the fuel. So the two-cylinder cutoff made the other four cylinders work a little harder and made a little more horsepower to make a little more heat. Hey, God, I, I forgot a, about that, Pete. Thanks for bringing that up. I forgot yeah, about that really two-cylinder well. cutoff. I, I have a trivia question about ether. Does, okay. Does anybody know what old farmers in the Midwest refer to ether as? No. Vitamin E. Oh, yeah? Never heard of that before. I hadn't either. Matt just shared that with me. He says the Minnesota, the old Minnesota farmers call it vitamin E. Yeah, I had a situation just this last week. I was shocked that that old 
mechanical diesel started up without ether, I was just as shocked that my new modern propane generator wouldn't start without ether. I thought propane and, and wasn't that wasn't as affected by cold as diesel was, but I could not get that thing to fire up. I had to give it a shot of ether to get it going. So do you keep ether at your place, at your shop? I do, yeah. Your garage? Yeah, I've got some in the coach. Not that I've ever had to use it on the coach, but um, I thought the other day I was going to have to use it on the coach to get the generator going. The engine actually started pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um, I could not get the generator to fire up, and I, I was going to get under there and start messing with it, and I let the engine run, and I got the aqua hot going and got it circulating, and then I got the generator going. But, yeah, I, I still have a can at home, a can out at the farm, and one in the coach just in case. Yeah. Ether's a good item properly used. Yeah, it doesn't take properly much. Used. Oh, Matt's. I, I guess I assumed the opposite. Matt said propane engines are horrible in cold weather. I experienced that. I thought it was the opposite for some reason. I'm not sure why. Was your APU on your uh, fifth wheel, Bruce, was it propane as well? No, gasoline. Oh, it was gasoline? Okay, I thought it was propane. Mm, no. 7.5 kW owning gasoline. So you didn't have any problems with it starting out west? No, we're perfect. All right, we should probably get back to some phone calls. We keep, uh, we keep talking to each other. We should probably talk to some callers. Let's go to Oklahoma. Paul, welcome. Howdy. What's on your mind today? So, DEF. So I have a question about it, and then I've got a little short story about my neighbor. So DEF will freeze at 12 degrees Fahrenheit. Does that change the composition, or does that make it degrade or anything once it thaws out? I didn't read. So when I was on Common Site reading about this, it, it didn't say anything about cold weather. It was strictly heat that would yeah. uh, shorten the life of it. Okay. <laughs> so last week, last spring, my neighbor, or last summer, my neighbor bought a new Chevy pickup truck with a diesel. And when I went down there to see him last week, he says, I've got a check engine light on, on, my, on my Chevy. I might have told you this, I don't know. Um, and he went to the dealer and said, can you turn the light off? And they turned the light off, and by the time he got back home, it would come back on. And uh, I said, I'll bet your DEF froze. He's like, what? I said, bet your DEF froze. So by the time, a couple of days later, when he went back there, the temperatures had got back up again, and he just went there and he told them to turn the check engine light off, and he said, I know what caused it. And they said, well, what do you think caused it? And he said, the DEF froze. And they said, well, we've never heard of that before. Because it don't normally go to 12 degrees in Oklahoma for sustained periods of time. But uh, they turned it off. And he said it didn't come back on again. So pretty much all it was. Had a guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's why they have heaters in the tank uh, on the trucks. They have, you know, heaters for the, the death fluid. Yeah. Yeah, well, he, he stuck it in the shed, but it don't got or in his barn, but he don't got no doors on it. And um, it was brutally cold for Oklahoma, and then we had more chaos yesterday. I missed it. We had more chaos yesterday with the ice storm, so which screwed things up, apparently. But I had to go the long way. I went up to Wichita Falls. I started in Dallas and went up to Wichita Falls, and then up 44 into Oklahoma City. And by the time I got there, it had warmed up to like 36, 37 
and I came along after the chaos, but everything froze at my house overnight, and uh, icicles and all sorts of shit falling off the trees today. So, yeah. So, right, that's all I got. All right. I'll let you get next, man. That's okay, all we need. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to Wisconsin. Brad, welcome. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I'm all, I've heard ether called as vitamins, but uh, anyway, my pyrometer is still not working after I replaced the thermal couple. Guys, have any other ideas? That could be the lead wire or the gauge itself. You know, all, all three sure. components play a part in it. Generally, it is the thermal couple. There's two thin wires in there that if they get bumped, whether it's with uh, someone working around it, someone hosing the engine off with a power washer, it can damage them and, and they quit working. But uh, we actually have equipment here with a little box that we would take the thermocouple out of the picture, hook up some gator clips to it, and then as we turn our dial, our gauge will say 300 degrees, your gauge should say 300, ours says 6, and yours should say 6. If it's not correct, the next step is go to the, the head itself, the gauge itself, and do the same thing and see where the problem's at. If the gauge itself's reading correctly, then it's an indication it's the lead wire causing the problem. So they, they ah! don't have that equipment, but we do. Is there any way I can test it? No, not without that piece of no, Not that I'm aware of, I should say that. Not that I'm aware of. Like I said, it's, it's a, a small box. It has a gauge on it that you know looks like a pyrometer. It's a needle. It sweeps. And when I move it to 300, the gauge should read 300. When I move it to you know, 600, say 600, and so forth. And you just keep going up. Because you can have a gauge read accurate to low temperatures, but off at the high ends or vice versa. And, and they give you a range of what's acceptable. Yep. And this is a gauge or a tool that we got from Hewitt to test pyrometers and, and lead wires. So if I sent my gauge in, you could take a look at it? Test it, yeah. Mm-hmm. The lead wire in the gauge, we could test it. So you and I might have. H-E-W- Hewitt is the company in Huntington Beach, California, that makes our pyrometers and our turbo boost gauges. We've been working with them for 48 years now. Well, I was very happy with it up until it started acting up. It- does a whole lot better than the old ISPRO. Yes. So I have a story to tell about ISPRO. Um, at one time, we, we did use them, and we did a lot of Dodge pickups. The, the second-generation Dodge, the mechanical engines, and you, know, you put a torque plate in, change the housing, and we generally knew the results we were going to get on a road test, pyrometer temp-wise and, and boost-wise. Well, all of a sudden, we're having pyrometer temp issues, like running way too hot. Nothing's making sense. Changing this, checking this. Turned out we checked the gauge, and they were reading incorrectly. So I called up ISPRO and said, hey, we got these gauges from you, and they're reading off. And they said, yeah, we know. We had a technician quit that sabotaged a bunch of the gauges. I said, okay, I'll send them back. And their response was, no, just tell your customers they're off by 100 degrees or 150 degrees, whatever it was. Like, absolutely not doing that. And I, we sent them all back, and, and that was the end of using those gauges. All right, Pete. How did we end up getting those gauges? Because I wasn't familiar with that. I don't know if we ran into an issue. This is when we were doing a lot of Dodge pickups, and we simply couldn't get enough of the Ute gauges. was more than likely the case. Mm. Yeah, at one point, it was well, like I'm surprised because I never, I never did like that gauge. Yeah. Okay. 
Wow. Would I need a return number or just get a yeah, hold of one of the partner guys? You'd call us ahead of time. We'd give you a RMA number. That way, when it comes in, my guys will know what needs to be done with it. All right. Well, then I'll give you guys a call after the show here. All right. Okay. Sounds okay. good. Thanks for the call. Let's uh, let's go to Pennsylvania. Charlie, welcome. Hello, gentlemen. How are you guys today? Good. What's on your mind? Hey, about the refractometer. Uh, Leroy is correct, except I thought you would know about it, Kevin, because that's what the military used to check antifreeze, but maybe the choppers didn't have antifreeze. They did um, not. When I worked for pilot, okay, see? When I worked for pilot, we actually had every truck that delivered DEF had to test the pump, the DEF in the ground before we dropped it. So if it was contaminated, we didn't drop it. Ah, and it okay. was tested. And they look like little calculators, uh, like a Texas Instrument calculator. They, they're like two, $300, uh, and they just read out digitally the percentage of DEF. That's, that's How did you get it all the way down in the ground? Did you have a long probe? No, no, Bruce. We just took it out the pump. We had a special card oh, to take okay. test samples. We, I was an employee pilot. We only did it at our locations, at pilot flying J locations. Mm -hmm. Anybody else, it was their problem. But we'd actually test it, and it had to be between this and that. I don't remember the numbers, but uh, it it was supposed to be 32 and a half. And if it was within a range of this to that, it, it was good. It had a little lid on it, too. If you didn't shut the lid and the light, the sun was hitting it, it wouldn't register it. It's good, good knowledge. Yeah, it's just, uh, well, you can get them for anything, but... They're, they're like, I guess, 500 bucks if you get the good ones and have a case with them. We just had them in. It's to know, though, that that it's being tested. Tested, yeah. At at, uh, at Brentag, they, they would blend it and test it before they loaded it, so we never had that fancy stuff. But at uh, mm -hmm. Pilot, they would blend it off the rail car and test it the batches, and then we would test what was in the ground before we dropped it. So it was tested all the time that way. Good. Uh, like when we dropped at other places, though, like I said, we didn't drop, we didn't test it because it was their tanks and it was their problem if it was contaminated. So if that helps mm. you guys. So if you ever want to yeah. test it, you can buy a refractometer. Like the kind Leroy was mentioning, they're like 30, 40 bucks. I just looked online because I'm sitting here waiting for a, don't kill me, Kevin, but I'm waiting for a shoulder replacement. Well, there you go. Yeah, so I, I don't want to hear about the medical thing because it's a torn rotator cuff and, a, and I need a reverse replacement because I'm so backwards, you know. Yeah, well, that's no fun. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey. Uh, that's because you retired did, three did you times in your life and you keep coming back to work. I know. Well, I'm going to park the truck till spring now, I guess. Uh, did you find out about a rad for the spring, Pete? I have not. So we're working with a new company. I haven't got any real numbers yet, but I am working on it. Okay. All right. Just figured I'd check. But that's. you have any questions about the DEF? Oh, and it does freeze at like 10 or 12 degrees, but when it thaws out, it doesn't change it a bit. Okay. Because I asked that when it was introduced at the truck show in Louisville. When Brent Tag was going to start selling it and Daimler, Chrysler, 
Mercedes were the only ones, Detroit were the only ones going to use it. I asked, what, how do you keep it from freezing in trucks? And the engineer from Germany was there, and my boss called him over. He said, we don't have any problem with that. I said, well, heck, it was minus 10 up in upstate New York the other day. I mean, what? Oh, well, we had to rethink this. That's when they come up with the heaters. They didn't realize it was that damn cold over here. That's why they put heaters in the trucks then after that. Not that it was my fault, but it was two years before they started it here. But, uh, yeah, but it doesn't change it up in upstate New York. They they just bring the totes inside if it froze. They were sitting outside. They'd bring it inside, and it would thaw out, and it was fine. It gets cloudy, and then it freezes into, like, a thick slush. Okay? All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for the call. If you have any questions. Will do. Let's go to Alberta. Jake, welcome. Hey, if I have a question about uh, exhaust temperature, um, like where would you want to see your pyro read downstream? Ideally, you want the thermocouple to be in the exhaust manifold in front of number four cylinder. And that's the hot side. And 12, 1300 degrees is kind of the cutoff. If you go to 1500 degrees occasionally, you're still okay. The steel top pistons will take it. But the uh, cast iron exhaust manifold starts to suffer if you're running consistent high exhaust temps. Okay, so my, I had this um, pyro put in about two years ago. I was just in front of the turbo. And, uh, these temperatures read on a hard pull, it will come up to 400 degrees, but normally it runs right around 300, and I'm just wondering about where you're expecting It's not working. Pyrometer's not working. Did we put it in? No. No. What brand of pyrometer is it? Um, it looks like it's got a W on it. I'm not, I can't really make it out right now. It's got a circle with a W in it. I, I can't read it. The truck did idle at 300 degrees. Going down the yeah. highway on the level, you want to be at 800. And you say you can hardly so, see 400. Yeah, uh, yeah. You got to it pretty hard to get her to come up to 400. So this is an Evolvo E16 engine. And um, I had this pyro put in about two years ago because I had the emission fixed at one time. And it, it had a, a, um, a digital readout of the pyrometer. But I lost that when it changed when I fixed the emission. And it read the same. It it read the same. And and um, that uh, pyrometer, I believe, was in the, the after treatment system. And it, it, it read the same value. Like, I mean, it was it, the highest I ever right. saw that thing was, read was 400, like 25. Yeah, it, it can't be that low. So stop by our shop. Let's put a Hewitt in. You already have the whole. You, you said it was in the manifold in the hot side, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Let's put the Hewitt pyrometer in there, and then you'll have a good gauge. Is it possible that it'll be running that low? Or is it that just... It can't. It can't run that low. It's impossible. No. You couldn't burn the fuel. You couldn't ignite it at those temperatures. Yeah. All right. Well, I've never been down to your part of the world, but <laughs> I don't work down there, so I'll just find a local shop maybe to change that out. But uh, what, no. what brand of gauge did you pick? Order, order the Hewitt pyrometer from us. We'll ship it to you and have your mechanic put it in. Well, you could put it in. 
you already have the hole there. It's a, it's an eight. I'm sorry, a quarter inch pipe thread. Just yep. take that one out and put ours in. Put the thermocouple in. Put some never sees on it. Uh, there's a red and yellow wire. You hook it up to the red and yellow wire on the lead wire. And then on the uh, back of the gauge, it's just a push-on wire. You have a red and yellow. And just that's all it is. It's very simple to hook up. There's no 12 volts right. that goes to it or anything except for the light. Yeah. Okay. I will do that. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's go to... Illinois. John, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. So, what about your ether? If you ever run out of it, um, part or a brake cleaner is actually a diluted version of ether and pretty much works the same way. Huh. I, I was wondering about that, and I'm glad you called and mentioned that because uh, I think I've used brake clean at times to start older engines years ago. I wasn't yeah, aware I, of that. I working on some snowmobiles and everything and don't want to hit it with the harsh ether to start it. I've used brake cleaner quite a bit. So Hey, are you coming to the owner operator snowmobile conference in February twenty first? No, I am not this year. No, I am not this year. Okay. Hey, uh, speaking Thanks. of things that'll make fire Cheap hairspray, I think it was called Aquanet. If you spray it and you hold a match under it, boy, it'll put out a flame about three feet long. Yeah, hairspray is also good for putting on, cheap hairspray is also good for putting the uh, charger cooler boots on. It makes a sticky, sticky uh, feeling so your boots actually stick to the thing before yep. you put the band on them. You ever see anybody yeah, inflate tires hey, with spray. it? Hey, Kevin, don't put them the, now. Whenever you're putting the cheap hairspray, don't put the match to it. No, no, you spray no. the hairspray inside the rubber boot. Yep. Slide it on the charger cooler and the piping, and put your clamp on. Right. Hey, Kevin, when I am in the queue, you actually sound echoey, like you're on the other side of the church. Yeah, I, I, I've talked about this, and it, it is a technological mystery. I know what's happening, but it shouldn't be able to happen, and we haven't figured out any way to fix it on the current system. Um, what's happening okay. is when you're hearing me on the app, my voice is coming through my high-quality headset, and it sounds good. When you're hearing me on the yep. phone system, for some reason, it's being picked up by the microphone on my laptop. And it, it shouldn't be. There's, there's no reason. I couldn't make it do this if I tried to. And yet it keeps happening. So, yeah, when you hear me, in your, if you're sitting in the queue listening, or when you come on and you're hearing me on the phone, a lot of times it sounds really echoey. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we, as long as you guys know what's happening. So it's... Uh, yeah. We, um, we, but I just figured I'd let... We know it, and I've spent an awful lot of time. Like I said, if I wanted to make my audio work like this, I wouldn't be able to. There's no way to make it do this except it's doing it. Yep. All so, right. Well, you guys have a good week, and I will uh, have, listen to the show. So have a good day. All right. Thanks for the call. Speaking of which, though, we are uh, I'm pretty excited about where we are with technology. We're finally making some pretty big improvements. 
right now we've been on Starlink. I, I got to say this. I'm going to say it again. Elon Musk impresses me more and more all the time. Starlink, you look at what this guy does. He's got like six different companies that do all kinds of crazy stuff that he runs. Then he went and bought Twitter and he spends an awful lot of time on Twitter or X these days. And I will tell you that Starlink hands down is the best internet I've ever dealt with. And I have dealt with a hundred different forms of internet over the last 20 years, moving around, doing my show from the road. I've had every cellular card you can have. I've had signal aggregators. I've had satellite. Um, nothing as far as internet has been as good as Starlink. Not just the experience. The experience is incredible. You go online, takes you all of about three minutes to open an account and have the stuff shipped to you. When you get it, you pull it out of the box, you connect everything together, and it works. No technological problems, nothing complicated, high-quality stuff. And then I expected my internet quality, speed, all of that stuff to be not as good as the fiber I have coming into the house, except it's way better. The, the internet signal itself is more stable, it's faster. The quality on my TV picture when I'm streaming is very noticeably better on the Starlink. I, it looks like I'm getting true 4K on my Starlink and I can switch back to my fiber and my TV now looks I'm, like I'm back to 720 pixels. I, it's, I am really, really impressed with it. So we, we now have three uh, Starlink systems. I've got one I borrowed from Aaron. Um, we have one here at the house that will also be the one that will go on my coach when I travel. And then we have one out at the farm. And I'm seriously thinking about replacing our fiber down at the warehouse with Starlink just because it works so much better. Um, but then we've got something else that I'm hoping to maybe get activated today. I've got a backup that I will plug my Starlink into. I will keep the home fiber and I'll plug that into this box. And then I have two cellular cards and there are two cellular modems. So I have AT, AT&T and Verizon. So I actually have four internet signals coming into one box that aggregates them. If this thing works the way it's supposed to, I should never ever have an internet drop again. That, that should not be an issue. We'll see, because it has to happen really, really fast in order not to lose any audio, but that should make things much better once I get that up and running. And we had another meeting yesterday about our software, finally replacing the phone system. Uh, and everything's on track. It's looking really good. We had a long meeting yesterday, worked out some things. We should be testing that by the end of the month. So hopefully audio quality, um, the technical issues we've had, hopefully we're about to overcome all of those. And uh, once we get it done for me here, then we'll start building systems for our remote broadcasters like you guys there at Pittsburgh Power. We'll make this a whole lot easier and, and better quality. So we're excited about that. Um, what? Let me check the calls here. Um, I need some calls screened. We've got Morgan, if you could screen the last three calls that are up there and then don't take any more calls uh, I do have a big meeting at 11 o'clock about 
relaunching the CMC at Matt's. We'll probably have meetings every day for a while uh, to get that caught up. So we're going to take these last three calls that are on the board. Um, we won't be taking any more calls. So if you're not on the board, don't dial. Um, we're not going to take or screen those calls. Um, anybody have anything else? We've got a minute or so here while we're waiting to screen a call. What do we got? I don't really have anything. Uh, what? <laughs> they were just focused. He started with them. We did, I know. I know. He was, he was snoozing again. All right, we, uh, we're going to talk to Matt. Matt, what's on your mind? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, well, first, it's funny listening to you talk about cold weather, Kevin, and the harsh winter and all that, because you don't even get a harsh winter, even this year. Well, <laughs> not, not compared to me. That is correct. But I, I will tell you, like I said, I, I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio in the snow belt between Cleveland and Buffalo. I lived in Colorado at over 9,000 feet. I, I am aware of what really harsh winters are like, and I got to tell you, this this last storm that I just dealt with out here is, in my memory, the worst, the most work I've had to do, the most problems I've ever had based on weather. Uh, and part of it is because it was very extreme for us, and we don't prepare for this kind of stuff. Like for heat out here, we have heat pumps. Heat pumps, once you get below yeah. 30, are almost worthless. When you get down to zero, they might as well be air conditioners. I mean, they just do not work at all at those temperatures. They don't put out any heat at all. And we don't insulate as well. We don't protect our pipes as well because we don't need to. And all you hear around here right now is burst pipes and water damage. I, this one sounds awful yep. to me. Um, I was talking to somebody who owned a small business and they came into their building the other day with two feet of water in the building. The hot water heater is in the attic and the pipe burst on it. Who thought of that? Why would you put a water heater in the attic? Because in the summertime, that's the hottest part of the house. So that would probably be most efficient. Ah, oh, but man, you come on. If you spring a leak, you just know you're going to ruin the whole building. Well, yeah, that, there, there's a huge difference in, you know, building code and all that, because I get a kick out of down in Florida where they got PVC water pipes just running across the yard on top of the ground. Right. So all I can think about is, boy, that would suck in a cold weather event. <laughs> well, so I do have a burst pipe to deal with, and it's exactly that. In the pump house, they ran PVC pipe and about two feet of it is actually laying on the concrete. And that's where it burst and where it froze and burst. So, so I'm going to repair um, that. So and I'm going to get that about six to eight inches off the ground. Uh, last Friday, Jerry, regular caller, had asked about how cold people will not idle their truck. Now, considering you got a bunk heater to keep yourself warm, and either an aqua heater to heat the engine or tripack or the other brands, whatever, APU, that heats the, the engine block. Uh, Joel is obviously very extreme because he said he was 43 below once and didn't idle his truck. Yeah. Um, me personally, it, well, yeah, it all depends on the truck. You know, newer engines and lower viscosity oils start cranky easier. They do. Um, for me, it's 
10 below is my number just because a i run north and south so i don't even sleep in minnesota in the truck that common right in the cold weather and you know at home i'll shut it off and not worry about it it's plugged in and but to me it's just yeah if i'm on the road and if anything went wrong you know i'm trying to deal with it in a parking lot or at a customer or something i'd i'd rather just idle if it gets down to 10 below it's, it seems a whole lot I safer to me, that. unless, like you say, you got a new modern truck and you know that it starts that cold. And some of these things do. They're pretty incredible. Yep. And yeah, so, so far this season, I've idled one night. And, okay. You know, we're really only four or five weeks away from, you know, the worst of the cold being over. So, and I, I can tell you that in the 10-day forecast, I don't have to worry about it because we're getting rain in Minnesota. And the two inches of snow we did have is going to be gone this week. We've been getting rain for about 36 hours now, just this light drizzle coming out of the sky, and it's nowhere near enough to get rid of the two feet of snow we still have on the ground. So it's just kind of still really messy here. But we may be up into the 50s in the next couple of days. Yep. And, yeah, the the propane engine thing, I always assumed, like you did, Kevin, that, gosh, a propane engine with spark plugs, that should fire real easy in cold weather. Yeah, to run no problem, but I I can't explain why. I don't know the reason, you, but yeah, they're a propane internal combustion engine is horrible in cold weather. So they my just will thought, not fire. You know, my thought was it. it and I, I guess I was just trying to use logic that doesn't necessarily work. That it seems like the heavier the fuel the harder it is to start that engine in the wintertime. So we switch from number two to number one and kerosene. They're lighter fuels. They start easier. And in my mind, about the lightest fuel we use is propane. It, it's a really light, like you say, it's a, it's a spark plug. In my mind, I'm thinking if everything else is starting, if I, my old mechanical diesel is starting, the propane should fire right up. And I went out there and cranked and cranked and cranked, and that thing would just not go. And I thought, and even in my mind, I'm like, do you use ether on propane? And I'm thinking, why not? I mean, it's an internal combustion engine. should work just fine. And sure enough, a tiny little shot. Again, I, it's not like I soaked the air cleaner. Tiny little shot in there, and that's all it needed to get it going. And once it was going, it ran pretty smooth. But I, I was shocked. I could not get it started without it. No. Yeah, because, you know, Dale Howard, he's always got a funny one-liner for everything. Yeah. And, of course, you know, him living in Alberta where 30 and 40 below in the winter is, you know, normal common. Yeah. A couple of times throughout the winter. He said, yeah, a propane engine, if you're eating an ice cream cone in front of that engine, it probably won't start. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, I was surprised. I, I really, like you, I thought the opposite. I, I thought that should be the one engine I don't have to worry about. Yeah. So the EEF, we have a 2016 Jeep Grand Cherokee with a three-liter diesel. And like Leroy was explaining with his uh, Volkswagen, we get, I think, around 1,200 miles to the gallon on death. And but our Jeep has a, I think it's a 12-gallon tank. It's very large for a small vehicle, so it's once a year we're putting DEF in it. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're saying and the DEF tank is 12 gallon? I think so, because on average, you know, it, wow. it gives a light a warning when you get to 25 percent. 
And at that point, we're putting like eight gallons in. Oh, my God. So, yeah, we only buy it in bulk. We got a store right in town, truck stop, that has bulk at the pump. So we, uh, you know, yeah, just every every nine, ten months or so, top it off and never worry about it. There you wow. go. So I, I, I think oh. their their date on when it goes bad is probably not like a hard date that, you know, maybe you lose a little bit of quality, but not enough to make any difference. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that Jeep is parked in a garage. I mean, it's insulated, but it's not air conditioned in the summer, but yeah, so it can get pretty hot in there. But then again, I think the tank on the vehicle is more sealed. So like the, the condensation side of it or evaporation side, I should say, I think in the vehicle is probably way less than any type of storage container. Hmm. Could be. I haven't heard of many problems with DEF quality, so. Yeah. The the only engine I own that has it, so I don't have a whole lot of experience. But I was wondering, like, on the bulk side now, if you did, because obviously just one vehicle or a a two-and-a-half-gallon jug, you just throw it away if it's bad. But if you had a bulk tank and it has evaporated some of the water out, could you add distilled water to to bring the percentage of urea back down? Good. You know, I've got a, um, I've got a fuel guy that I interact with on X. Maybe I'll run these questions by him. He would probably know all of this. No. I may do that. All righty. Well, I'll let you wrap up the rest of the call so you can get on with your meetings today. All right. Thanks for the call. Let's go to California. Harold, welcome. Gentlemen, I have a question. Um, in this 2020 Peterbilt with an X-15, I ordered all the gauges I could, and it came without a pyrometer. They just don't put them in here anymore. But I put the OTR scan gauge in here. I bought a subscription for that. So I can see my, my diesel particulate filter temperature, and I'm wondering if you know what the difference is in what would be a pyrometer reading and the diesel particulate filter temperature. I can get it up to around 700 going up a hill. Uh, I'm thinking it's maybe 300 degrees difference. Any ideas on that? I mean, DPF temperature is kind of vague. Is it DPF inlet temp? Is it DPF outlet temp? That I don't know. Uh, It's just whatever shows up on the scan gauge. But when I'm climbing the hill, about the most it'll get is 700 degrees. Right now, I'm kind of in some rollers, and it's running about 565 right now. I didn't know if you'd ever tested it or looked at that on your dyno or not. I know sometimes some trucks use the DOC inlet temperature as the as the pyrometer gauge, which doesn't really make much sense because it's like three feet away from the back of the turbo. And that temperature sounds about right for under full load, about like 700 degrees there. That, that would be what my guess would be. So I'd probably be somewhere around 900 to 1,000 if the pyrometer I, was in the right place? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only way I know for sure is actually put a, an actual hole there. Yeah, it's irritating. They just won't put them in these trucks anymore from the factory and this is i mean i've had many trucks over the years this is the first one without one so all right well i thought i'd check and see if you had any numbers on from the from the uh oh the the dyno that you had there 
Yeah. Is this Harold, the car hauler? Yes, sir. How you doing, Bruce? Uh, good. <laughs> we're the we're the same age now for a few months. <laughs> so uh, okay. and we're still working. <laughs> so, I, you know, I just I can't not work. I go crazy without it. I just uh I, I just love well, it. I can tell I, you I, down here in Florida in a retirement community, these people that have nothing to do, they do not like it. <laughs> Uh, after two or three days at home, <laughs> two or three days at home, I'm ready to go again, and my dog's ready to go with me. So <laughs> she gets nervous if we're there very long. I was talking to a guy this morning has a little dog in his golf cart. He said she lets me know every morning when it's time to go in the golf cart for the ride. And then I think of all the dogs that are riding in semi-trucks that are the same way. And uh, yeah, this full retirement. I said I was going to work till I was 76. So that's a year and three weeks. I probably won't quit at 76. <laughs> I'm, ho- I'm hoping I can go until I'm 80, but we'll see. <laughs> now, don't you have some type of auxiliary heater? Don't you have an APU on this truck? No, I, I had that polar storm unit for the air conditioner and for the hydraulic when I first brought it in to you, but that failed miserably, and I ended up putting the electric APU on just for my air conditioning and for my uh, hydraulic pump. So I, I'm running that on a 24-volt system. The guy up there by Chicago put that in. But I don't. all I have is an SPAR heater, which I, I like sleeping cold, so I rarely use it. I did idle mine the other day in Toledo. It was five degrees, and I started the truck up about one o'clock and let it run because I was worried more about the truck than myself. Uh, I, I didn't want the airlines or the fuel yeah. to freeze up. And even with uh, the house in there, I started freezing. My fuel lines felt like uh, they were freezing up on the, and it was like a clogged artery where just a little bit of fuel was getting through on my way into Chicago that day. It was four degrees, and I don't know what the wind chill was, but I added some more. I had some of the Lucas, oh, the, the stuff for the anti-gel, and I put a little bit more of that in there when I was loading the car, and it took an hour just to raise that back deck up because the hydraulic fluid just did not want to move. So, did, um... yeah. Pete, what do we call our anti-gel? Cold snap. Cold snap. Have you tried our cold snap? I have not. I've been using your catalyst forever, and I didn't know if they sent me the winter stuff this time or not, but it's almost time for that to be over. So I rarely add anything, but as cold as it was, I I ended up putting some of that house in there. Because the chemist who is the cold snap for us. I've known him for 40-some years, and he was the chemist that started FPPF. And I oh, see okay. Jackie, I've seen Warmly, that. Jackie Warmly uses FPPF. Well, this fellow's name was Glenn, and he started that company, and he was supposed to. The guy that funded it for him was an accountant, and after so many years, Glenn had the option to buy it, and then if things were going well and the accountant backed out of the deal, so Glenn started his own. And that's when I really became friends with him. And so when it came time to have the cold snap made, I went, we went to him and uh, he formulated it for us and bottles it. And 
So it's it's been a product that's been around a long time, even though it's we're new to marketing it. It's forty some year old product. Okay, so it works, it works very before. very well. Okay, good. I'll pick some of that up uh, next time I'm there for next winter. Then. So you think winter's going to be over already, mid January? Well, no, not not really. I mean, I make about a trip back and forth between California and Boston every three and a half weeks. So I usually get three trips that are pretty cold. So I don't know. Okay. By by probably by March it'll be warming up again. I imagine. But this so, trip was probably one. Go ahead. This this trip I went on was probably one of the coldest trips I've done in 49 years uh, overall. You know, I started in a mm. blizzard in Vermont and then ended up in Chicago there at four degrees, and uh, and I just hadn't seen that bad of weather in the last 20 years or so. Maybe when I first yeah. started, I saw some really cold stuff up in Wyoming, which I don't go through there anymore in the wintertime. But it was chilly. You're in the, you were in the right place during all this freezing temperatures, Bruce. Well, it wasn't really nice down here. It was rainy and windy and cold. We had some 53-degree morning. No, it's colder than 53. <laughs> I mean, people are really bundled up down here. But we have an owner-operator, a retired owner-operator living in a sailboat. And he's working at the marina, and he pumps gasoline and diesel fuel, and he said, man, did I get bored really quick with retirement. And I talked to a lot of the guys, the retired guys that are working at Home Depot. They, the one girl told me they start you out at $17.50 an hour. And they say it's not the money. It's the fact that they need something to do with their time. So I understand that completely. I need the carrot and the stick in my life. <laughs> That's right. For me, I gotta have something to get. Need up a reason to get up in the morning. Exactly, uh, I think that's a lost item in society nowadays. But I've, uh, I don't know. I took two years off after I sold a business when I was forty-eight years old, and I I went crazy. It's been good for me at this age. Keeps me stretching and moving and and doing things and thinking about it all the time because. We do private vehicles. I think you know that. And we have like 250 customers a year that are our own customers. Most of them are. So it's good dealing with them a little bit on the pickup side and on the delivery side and keeps me mm -hmm. thinking and moving. There you go. There was an owner-operator. My wife's up on the library app, I think, in November, and I've listened to 35 full-length novels, mostly uh, – the Harry Bosch series and the Lincoln Lawyer in the last two months. 35 full-length novels when I'm not listening to, to Kevin and you guys listening to books. There was a owner-operator. He was 62 or 64. He, and he said, honey, been on the road for 35 or 40 years. Married to the same woman and, and it's either I'm going to retire or have Bruce build me a truck. She said, you better have Bruce build you a truck. <laughs> so, a, a man that was never home, and now all of a sudden he's home and wants three meals a day, and he could bring on a divorce. Yes. So, I would, uh, yeah, my situation, I've been married 41 years now, and bless her heart, she's, uh, but when I'm home, it uh, sometimes does get difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
All right. It's Good interesting stuff. how people that work for large companies count the days till they're 62 and they can retire. God, 62 in our industry is just another year. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding. Uh, all right. Hey, we had to move along. I've got to knock out these last two calls. Let's, uh, let's get to Wisconsin. Mick, welcome. Hey, Kevin. Hey, uh, one thing that I was thinking about with your propane, you might try if it's not too much hassle, put the tank inside. Um, I think the propane has trouble going through the regulator when it's cold. So, I so think is a lot of the issue on that. It's interesting. My, uh, my tank is buried, so it should be warmer. And it's a big tank, 1,000 uh, okay, yeah. gallons, so it's, it's pretty well buried. It's deep because it's a big tank. Um, somebody explained to me why this happens on propane, and it made total sense. And I just saw a video the other day. It was so cold out that the guy was standing outside with a wine glass, and it looked like he had white wine in it, and he was swirling it. It was propane. Propane liquefies oh, wow. when you get it super cold. Sure. So as a gas... Yeah, because it just yeah it pulls the gas off the top. Yeah. Yeah, so as a gas, it flows through all the lines and the regulators. The cold, you know, doesn't affect it until it does. So it, it is a nice light fuel until it gets cold enough to liquefy. And then you're right, you're going to have a hard time moving it through lines and regulators. It's not going to ignite. That makes sense to me. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't advocate this, but I've, I've got one of those little propane fire uh, heaters that you, anyway, when it's really cold out, if you just move the tank a little closer to in front of the heater, <laughs> it makes it work a lot better. Well, but you know, kinda, you don't want to get it too, too close, obviously, but uh, one of the things I do, I, I fill those throwaway one pound bottles I fill those from my 20-pound oh, tank. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've got an adapter, and then what I do to make okay. it work really well is I will set the 20-pound bottle outside in the sun and let it get nice and hot even, and I'll take the sure, one-pound yep. bottles and put them in the freezer. And then I turn, oh. it, and it, then I seem to get a better fill. My one-pound bottle weighs more than if I don't do that. Okay, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're kind of forcing the, huh. the 20 pound bottle to expand and, you know, getting the one pound bottle nice and chilled to kind of suck it in seems to work. Yeah, okay. Yeah, good, cool. Good tip. Hey, Bruce, um, what's the, the temperature difference on the pyrometer between the manifold and then the, like, I've got the Peterbilt. I think it's probably about four inches away from the, the turbo on the. It's 300 degrees. 300. So my, I've got an, yes. uh, I've got a uh, 99 2WS cat, and it's sitting here on the level, like right around just under 700 degrees. So that pretty good then, do you think, or is that running on the hotter side? Or? So you're on the level right now, correct? Correct. Yeah. How many pounds of turbo boost? About six pounds right now. Yeah, you're perfect. You're okay. absolutely perfect. The 800 right, that we talk about is when you're on the hot side. So, uh, and and that 300 degrees difference is when you're like at 1200. On the hot side is 900 on the cold. 
So okay. now you're you're perfect right there. You're probably 800, 850 degrees. You don't get efficiency until you get to 800. So you're there. All right, great. Yeah, it seems like it runs, you know, well. But um, I are you I in a 379? Yeah, it is. It's a it's a three seven. It's an O three three seventy nine. Originally, it had a C twelve in it, and that engine uh, it actually still ran pretty good. But it was using oil, and it had over a million miles. And I I had never had a big a big engine before, and so I I found this two WS that a guy had, and I had it um, completely tore down and uh, uh, took the block to the machine machine shop and had it all made back to right we use, reuse the crank and the cam um, and uh um, i have your manifold i have the borg warner turbo the the four zeros is the last numbers of the part i think it's a 78 132 if i remember correctly yeah um mm-hmm. that's and, a great uh, turbo if you're if you're running if you run easy like you are right now if you're going to yeah, run so, hard then we want to go a little bit we want to go up one size on turbine housing one size on the wheel but for running easy, that's perfect. Okay, so I run around 63. My it's it's still got the 370 gears from with the C12. I've got a a set of I've got a full cutoff uh, with the 264s in it. That's going to be one of my next problems. Um, but uh, awesome. so you'll be, all right. Well, good, you'll be shocked good at the them. difference in how it runs with those 264s. So yeah, I'm kind of excited and. Uh, um, so and then my my temperature cutoff I I I'm a little bit more uh, theory than everybody else. I if it's going to be below ten, I don't like to shut it off. But I I have started it below zero. But I I just like kind of like what Matt said. If you're out on the road, I just I've spent the truck will not start when it's below zero. It is an all day project to get it, and that's that's just horrible. <laughs> I'd rather spend thirty forty bucks of fuel. <laughs> So that's just me. No, sometimes that's oh, one the better thing, plan. One, yeah, one other thing that um, I called uh, a few weeks ago about the temperature on the transmission, and so I took that, I bypass or unhooked that oil cooler and just put a about a four foot loop hose up inside the rail, and it sits there, runs around right at one twenty five to one thirty now, whereas before it would barely creep up over a hundred. So, but that's you know thirty degree temperature. So, so just well, get back. All right, that's all I got, guys. Get back. You put the two sixty fours in, and then tell us your temperature and your transmission is going to go down again when you're running Ah. indirect. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. Good stuff. Thanks for the call. We are going to take the final call of the day. Justin, what's on your mind? Yeah, I sent you an oil sample there. Uh, well, this one's pretty easy. Do you have any concerns? No, just that base, I guess, was yellow, and otherwise, yeah, I think it looked good. I don't have a bypass or none of that extra stuff, just uh, 15,000 miles on that oil, so I think I'm going to so, keep it, go a little longer with it, I guess. Oh, I absolutely would. There's no reason not to go longer on this oil. That's why we sample. The oil itself is in great condition. You're getting close on the base. Yeah, if we get under two, then I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to start adding. So I, I would just grab some base additive and and dump some of that in. How and, about? Go ahead. Uh, I think I'm going to have to add one more gallon here 
pretty soon will that add a little base too, or will it I will. still need to add the... Now, if, if you're okay. going to add a gallon, I wouldn't even bother putting base additive in yet. Okay. Well, that sounds real good then. Yeah, this looks really good for an A-cert so. especially. Okay. Oh, that's all I kind of had there other than just to tell Bruce, he used to work on snowmobiles. We spent time in Grand Lake and Granby, Colorado. They're uh, getting our sleds ready for X Games and stuff. And I, one of the years I want to make it out to his conference, but it won't be this year. So, Well, we're going to be in Grand Lake. Yeah, that's what I keep hearing. That's where you guys are at. So we spent a few. Are you, where, where, where do you live? I live in North Dakota, but I work for a snowcross team out of Minnesota there. We raced snowcross sleds and we'd go to X Games, but we'd take a take a week or two ahead of time to go get acclimated, get the guys acclimated and the sleds ready and the elevation and stuff before the X Games. Were there. you at the X Games in 2003? I, I started in either 2003 or four, or so... 2003, I was representing the new Skidoo, the Reb chassis. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was maybe one year before I started. I uh, The first team I worked for was actually out of St. Cloud, and they raced St., uh, Skidoo's. That was my first year I helped them. But, you know, that probably was 04, 05. Bombardier wanted me to send them a bill from my time. I had so much fun out there, I didn't even bother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just really enjoyed it. Hey, I, it was a lot of fun. Out of buttermilk. Buttermilk, Colorado. Great. It's a great ski yep. mountain, by the way, too. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't get much time for any extra stuff other than working and those games you put a lot of time in for a 15-minute race on TV, but if you could come out on top, yeah. it was a pretty good deal. Yeah. But. Well, you should come. We'll so. make you one of the speakers at the conference. <laughs> I don't know about that. I've been out of it for 10 years now, but... Okay. You know, I just bought a new 850 Skidoo Turbo, and my God, do I love that machine. Yeah, they've come a long ways. I know that. No, it's balanced so well. You just you just counter steer, flip the throttle, and put your weight on. If you want to go to the left, put your weight on your left leg, and it just lays right over and pulls around. It's a wonderful machine. Uh, yeah, they're pretty amazing. And then out of, out of, out of Portland, Oregon, I just bought a set of... Uh, or a pair of heated goggles to heat the frame now. Oh. And it's, we'll put a little, it's called, uh, let, me, let me tell you, for people that might need heated goggles, they're wonderful because they don't fog. It's Tempest, T-E-M-P-E-S-T. Okay. And I'll tell you where they're out of. Portland, Oregon. Look okay. at that. The old yeah. heated goggles we had had a heating pack on the side, and if you didn't keep them charged, then it went dead. And so I'm going to call them now and order a new heating pack. But I heard about Tempest through Mike Lane, and and I called them, and they sent me a pair. I just got them yesterday, and uh, it, I, you know, in Florida, I don't really need them, but I'll use them when I get back to Colorado in about uh, three weeks. And looking forward to it. The heating element is right in the frame of the lens, and here's the other beautiful thing the lens is held on with magnets well those are nice oh so yeah. you just pop it off yeah and you just flip it back on the new one when you want to change colors there's nothing you don't have to get it done in that groove and get the fingerprints yeah. all over the lens right. and, and so yeah that's uh, nice very interesting 
And then there's one other thing I'm going to leave you with, Kevin. Angie talked me into two more bags of monkey brittle when I was ordering my, uh, what's the stuff you put, you take for your, for your gut? Probiotics. Probiotics. Oh, boy, is that, does your probiotic work well? Yes, it does. When the, when the gut's acting up, that stuff really works. So I got the monkey brittle on the other day. I, yeah, about 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I, I'm looking for something sweet, and I took some monkey brittle, and I put extra rich whipped cream on it. <laughs> wow. There you go. Was that good? Yeah. That was really good. Good stuff. All right. Okay. We are going to wrap this up, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Thanks to the team from Pittsburgh Power. As always, if you have any other questions between now and then, give them a call. We will see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.